Oh, oh, wait, we started. I'm sorry. I was doing some white lines with Dennis Weaver tonight. And I kind of stopped. <sighs> we're talking about his movies. So mm. if you don't mind, we were just visiting the Colombian marching powder. Getting, <laughs> getting to know each other. Becoming friendly. Selling houses. Buying cars. And then I had to come and do this show. Uh, so here we are. This is Made for TV Mayhem. My name is Amanda, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, who are much funnier than me, so excuse that horrible opening. Um, I'm here with Dan. Hi, Dan. Hey. You, the thing about those million-dollar listings is I guess they do require a lot of cocaine. I um, I didn't realize that <laughs> back when I – because I'm a big fan of, you know, the reality shows and, uh, you know, million-dollar listings, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Florida. I didn't realize yeah, you have to do a lot of coke if you want to, you know, hustle with the big time. That's good. So I suppose you can put that on your expenses and write that off in your taxes. That's probably. You probably could because you couldn't survive without the white lines. You know what I mean? Sweet without the white snort, lines. without the blow. Without the. Without the C. Yes. <laughs> without your nose candy. Without mm. having a bump. Uh, I don't, you know what? I don't need a septum. Who needs a septum? <laughs> you know what? You know what? I'll, I'll be the Steve Austin. Of of co of realtors, I'll put in bionic septum that can take as much cocaine as you can give me. You know what? I bet somebody's tried that. Somebody probably has. I didn't even think to Google that today. And we're also here with Nate. Hi, Nate. Hi, Amanda. Now, you're more about clean living, aren't you, Nate? Oh, yes. Because if I'm right, you don't even really drink. No, I mean, I, I do, but not often. So... When you watch movies like Cocaine One Man Seduction, are you just horrified by the realism of drug addiction? Um, well, um, I guess I, I could say that uh, I probably would be, but I think I've been desensitized to seeing like <laughs> way worse in movies before I watched this one. So, um, I no, I think this one hits the hardest. Mm. Have you seen Jekyll and Hyde together again? <laughs> Is there drugs in that? Oh yeah, doesn't he? Doesn't he become Hyde through uh, lots of cocaine? I believe Mark Blankenfield. Oh, I don't know. I never saw it. Mm -hmm. I think Mark Blank Mark Blankenfield was always just high. He was, yeah. He was the like on Fridays. He was the um, the pharmacist who took his own drugs all the time. I Am believe. I wrong that he used to own the place that the kids on Saved by the Bell hung out at? Was that him? The Max. Yeah. I mean, before what the cute guy took over from Melrose Place. Mm, that I can't help I you. Remember, I think it might be him. I'm not positive, but that's another podcast. It is. Yeah, it is. so we're here, and we're obviously going to be discussing drug movies. Well, one drug movie, and one movie that <laughs> you feel like you're on the weirdest, scariest drugs ever. So we're uh, paying tribute to Dennis Weaver, and we're talking about Cocaine One Man Seduction and Duel. And usually when we do these, we do the, the famous classic film first, and then we bring in the second film, less known film. But we're going to switch it up because I really wanted Nate, who can usually only make one film, to watch both or to watch Cocaine One Man Seduction because I think it's just one of those movies you have to see because it captures the 80s in all those ways that made me love the 80s. Mm -hmm. It's got drugs. It's got characters. It's got actors from Dynasty. <laughs> it's got James Spader with yeah. big hair. It's got Jeffrey Tambor with no hair. It's got Dennis Weaver looking exactly the same as he did in Duel 12 years before, yes, just with I... a little extra uh, salt and pepper in his hair. Yeah, he looked good, I have to say. Dennis he Weaver aged really well. Like when yeah. you watch him in Touch of Evil, he, you know, he kind of reminds mm. me of Bruce Dern. Mm. Oh, yeah. Then he sort of grew into something else when he hit McLeod. McLeod. Yeah, and then he just kind of like kept going with. It. He's like, you know what, the stash, I like it. I'm keeping it. Yeah, 
Yeah. So Agreed. those are those are our movies for tonight. I actually was going to start um, this episode though with a little roundtable. Not it's kind of very impromptu. I I only half thought of it because it's been about a month since we recorded, and in the last month we've lost like everybody who ever made a good TV movie. So I thought it might be nice if we talked a little bit about either Larry Drake, Frank DiFolita, who directed Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, or Patty Duke. Mm-hmm. And if anybody, I know Nate, when we originally did our first episode and there were, we were going to pick our top three movies, you picked a movie with Patty Duke, right? And Loretta Swit. Yeah, it was um, A Killer Among Friends. Right. And um, tell us a little bit was, about that because you didn't get to talk about it. It was a. Uh, yeah, Patty Duke um, plays a mother. Tiffany Amber Thiessen, I believe, was was playing her daughter, and she is is murdered. Um, and uh, her friends are the ones that kill her, and then you know Patty Duke's the mom who, you know, is kind of in the dark about it, and you know it's one of those movies where it kind of builds until she finds out the truth. Yeah, I remember it being really good. I saw it years ago on Lifetime. And I haven't seen it since, so I only have really vague memories of it. But I feel like there's a scene at the end where she kind of confronts the friends or something well, to that effect. Yeah, there's the, there is a scene at the end where they don't really say anything to each other, but she walks up to one of them and slaps her so hard it turn, <laughs> knocks the girl in a whole circle. <laughs> oh, see? She had a comment. You have to admit she had a comment. Yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah, Patty Duke was really great in everything. Like, even if the movies weren't good, and you can go back and watch Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby, which is probably one of the not good, <laughs> one of the worst TV horror movies I can think of. I I've, I don't even know if I've sat through the whole thing because it's just really uninvolving. But her performance is really solid. And, you know, she made TV movies in just about every decade of her life from the onset of TV movies, like, right, started with My Sweet Charlie, and then moving into the 70s with, like, Curse of the Black Widow, and look what happened to Rosemary's Baby. She did, um, the movie that stands out to me in the 80s was the Amityville movie. Did you guys see that? Um, which, which one was it? It's the one where her, like, sister or mom buys a possessed lamp from, I was like thinking, a, like, yeah, I was thinking it was something like that, because, uh, I just remember some scene at the end where they throw the lamp, yes, uh, out the window or down a mountain or something. Yeah. There's actually a really great scene in that movie because I watched it when it originally aired and there's a really great scene where this kid that's I guess is dating her daughter maybe he's helping the daughter clean the garbage disposal. Does anybody remember the scene? Oh no, I don't remember oh, it. It will make you clench your teeth and gasp. It's for television it's really over the top and I never forgot it. And then I revisited the movie a couple years ago and it came out on DVD and it was just as like horrifying for me to watch. And I don't want to say much more. You have to see it. But she was really good in that. And that's I wouldn't say that's a great movie, but she's good in it. And then she did a movie in the 90s called. Oh, my God. Is it called Grave Secrets? The Legacy of Hilltop Drive? Yes. Yes. I remember that movie. It's a great movie. And it's on um, Amazon Prime, if anybody has Amazon, or I guess it's on Amazon Instant Video, and you can watch it with Prime. It's a, it's a loose, I guess it's a, based on a true story about a family who built a house on, like, an Indian burial ground. It's basically poltergeist, but it's supposed to be a true story. And just misery just comes into their lives. And not just them, like, the whole neighborhood. And it's got kind of a shocking ending. And um, I just saw it maybe two summers ago on a whim because it was on Amazon. And I was like, you know what? I've never seen this. And I was like, oh, my God. It was really good. It was really good. Um, She also did a really great movie. I think it's called Love Lessons with Ronnie Cox, where she plays an older woman who gets pregnant. 
and it's very lifetimey, and it's about how they come to terms with her being like 45 and having a baby, and that was really good. I mean, she was good in everything, and I think in general, everybody adored her. And you know, a lot of people pass away; they get older and they pass away. But I think very few people, with the exception of maybe David Bowie, have passed away recently. Where I think everybody just kind of was like, "I can't believe this." You know what I mean? And Dan said um, on the day she passed away that we should probably do a Patty Duke double feature. And I definitely think we should. It will be coming up. I think the big problem will be narrowing down what two movies to see. Because I like so many of them. And I think so many of them are, if they're not classics, maybe they should be. Or they're underrated and they really need to be discussed. So we are going to probably do that in the near future. So just keep tuned for that. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to say anything about Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. I know we talked about it recently, but, you know, the director and the star, Bubba, passed away just like weeks within each other. And that was really upsetting for me, too. Um, does anybody want to talk about Larry Drake or Frank DiFolita? I will say that I absolutely love Larry Drake in uh, the Tales from the Crypt episode. Oh, the Christmas the, one? Uh, the Santa. Yeah. I'm like, me and my friend Greg... Um, Grant Grant to people that <laughs> listen to Hysteria continues. We watch that Tales from the Crypt every uh, Christmas. We'll get together and we watch that Larry Drake one because Larry Drake Santa freaks him out more than anything I've ever seen. <laughs> Larry Drake could freak you out. I have to admit, oh, yeah. he was pretty was good. Really good. Yeah, he was really good in pretty much everything I can think of now. I didn't care for Dr. Giggles when I saw it at the drive-in with Raising Cane, by the way, which was a crazy double feature. But um, I did like his performance very much. I always thought he was just so good and everything. Dan, do you have anything you want to say about him? <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know what? Somebody just died. Ooh, they're cousins, identical cousins. And you'll find they laugh alike, they walk alike, and times they even talk alike. What were we talking about? Woo, I love stuff. What are we going on about? You know, Larry Drake. Oh, my God. He was the best. Was, Dr. Was, Giggles. Wasn't that your favorite, Amanda? You said with the drive-in. Woo! That was really disrespectful, Dan. Oh, my gosh. Watch your nose candy. Oh! Woo! Bionic septum activated. All right. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I love Larry Drake. Who what? <laughs> I hope their family's listening. <laughs> I've actually, I have cocaine playing on my left right now, and uh, Dennis Weaver's leaning over the glass table with the lawyer or the banker or whatever the heck he is, and oh, that okay, other realtor, and he's just taking the big hits, big snorts, and the the late the gal is offering him bok choy. I oh, guess yeah, 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 I remember that. I know exactly where you are in the movie. So we should <laughs> probably start then, because it looks like Dan's raring to go. I loved Aud Audrey Rose. Frank DeFolita, Audrey yes. Rose. You know what? When I was a kid, Audrey Rose was like one of the scariest things I ever saw. I didn't like it as much as an adult. And mm. I never read the book, which I know that he wrote the I book, right? But uh, do you remember Scissors with Sharon Stone? Oh, yeah. He did Scissors as well. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like he might have wrote or directed Trapped with James Brolin, and I wish I'd looked it up. Someone can look it up. Maybe not me, because I am just going at a thousand right now. <laughs> I know that's why I think we should probably segue into the movie because I All want right, to shout, the lightning shout. in a bottle that's up your nose. So. <laughs> it started as an innocent and curious whim. 
I built that office from the ground up. I was number one on the charts for 10 years running. 10. Every two years, a new car. That brought hope and a new outlook to a man who seemed to be losing it. The games that you can play in six figures, I mean, the money that's in this town, it's incredible. Eddie, I'm worried about you. His addiction accelerating with a vengeance. I gave you a large sum of money. Don't, don't tell me in a couple of days. It's been over two weeks now. I can't afford to run out of steam. Eddie, it gives so much, but it takes and it takes it and it takes. I'm not into it that heavy. A moving and powerful drama documenting the effects of cocaine dependence, starring Dennis Weaver, Karen Grasso, and Dynasty's Pamela Bellwood. A critically acclaimed film, Cocaine, One Man's Seduction. It takes, and it takes, and it, it takes. takes. You know, is that the equivalent of Bastard in Pieces? <laughs> oh, it could be. <laughs> it takes, and it takes, and it takes! <laughs> and I just want to say, isn't it um, uh, Grassley? Gra- it's Karen- Grassle. Is this so Grassle? Okay. It's always been Grassle. It's always going to be Grassle. Okay, because I was going to say on Battle of the Network Stars, the episode she's on, Howard Cosell calls her Grassley. Well, don't expect him to be correct ninety uh, percent of the time. That's why he's dead. <laughs> it could be. It could very well be Grassley, but the he's at the end and is usually silent when it's at the Grassley. end. I've always called her Grassle, and no one's corrected me because you know I talk <laughs> about her every day. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever said her name out loud to any other human being. Do you know what? I was obsessed with her because she did a couple TV movies and I can't remember what they were, but I'm like, oh my gosh, she's such a victim. I hate Karen Grassle. And then she was in a movie called The President's Mistress where she plays the literal victim, but she's Mm -hmm. so good in it. And I was like, I need to reappraise my thoughts on Karen Grassle. So I have actually said her name quite a few times. Okay. Well, I don't even know what I was doing. (laughs) February 27th, 1983. NBC, the story of Eddie Gant, played by Dennis Weaver. Eddie was a very uh, highly successful um, real estate guy, I believe. Are they in San Francisco? I had a tough time gauging okay, where I'm they not were. Sure, where they are? It's 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 north it's north of Los Angeles because they mention later on that he's going to get a job. He can get a job in Los Angeles, and they say something like, "You can go on down." there or something okay, like well, that. Okay, well, I knew it was California because of mm-hmm. the locations, but I didn't know where. I thought because a lot every time they show um, him pulling into his driveway, it reminds me sort of the um, Nick Millard films like um, from the 80s, like um, Crazy Fat Ethel 2 and <laughs> Dr. Bloodbath, because he had sort of the same kind of house. Yeah, oh, I love those movies. Though, uh, they're fantastic movies, and I, I believe they're set in the same region as this one, Eddie Gant. He was a successful real estate agent. He he is a, a real estate agent who sells to, I I I, I want to say like the middle class sort yeah. of the, the maybe the even people, a little lower middle class, to be honest. possibly even a little yeah a little lower than that. The people who, um, when you say what is the American dream, part of that equation is owning a home. Yes. And for ten years, the at the place where he was working, he was the number one salesman. Unfortunately. Times have now changed. And there's um, a really young guy named Tad, Tad Voss, who is, he's a douche nozzle to the extreme, I think. But he, yes. he's one of those guys who, he, he only, Tad sells only big, big homes, like million dollar listing San Francisco style homes. So he is at the top of the heap and, and Eddie is no longer up there. And Eddie is, the first time we see Eddie, he's sort of looking in the bathroom 
uh, mirror and his son's there and his son's played by James Spader. And if you want to bring a guy down, have James Spader run in with you like 1983-ish and you're sort of like, oh, okay, I don't look like him. And then you feel bad. <laughs> he was and, kind of um, a god in his day, wasn't he? He was, yeah. He was like there to Jack's back and a little bit further along. He was Before that, it was actually before even did Killer in the Family, which is the TV movie I think that oh, he might be most famous for being yes. in. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's another that's another that's another episode. Uh so Eddie is not he's not doing so great anymore. He's feeling the pressure of the fact that he's gone from the number one salesman to number six or seven. Uh that evening they have a big office party. And it's right after he meets up with a young couple who want to buy a house, but they don't get the loan they want because their credit is bad and they don't have enough money. And Eddie is not happy by the fact that he's number seven and he, the company he works for has just been bought out by another company. It's uh, I wrote it down, Trans Allies Properties Incorporated. <laughs> That's not now, generic. Now on this company and his boss, Dan, and most people named Dan are very nice people. They can't all be, though, let's be honest, um, becomes the new president of this section of Trans Allied. Eddie does not become a partner as he had expected to become. So he's feeling crappy. And there's a lovely young lady who works in their office named Robin. And Robin, I think, kind of likes Eddie a bit. Um, yeah. We as all Eddie do. Yeah, as Eddie's uh, – because I noticed as Eddie was sitting on his desk like having a little sip of scotch, she hops up on the desk next to him and her skirt goes up way too high for a moment for how high up she – she didn't jump up that high. She jumped onto a desk. So it's like, okay, I get it. But the thing with Robin is that she offers Eddie a toot. And what that means in 1980s parlance is would you like some cocaine for your nose? Eddie says, no, I'm a scotch man. She says, okay, they go about their business. What happens at this point is Eddie sort of, he's not doing so great at home. His son, Buddy, James Spader, doesn't want to go to Stanford where uh, Eddie wanted to go but couldn't go because he had to raise a family and he got into real estate. And uh, Eddie's feeling bad about that. His wife actually, Barbara, she's actually not giving him much of a problem at all. Uh, she, she's really nice throughout Big it. Jump. But yeah, more or less. And what what be, what begins to happen is they go to this big party at the boss's house, Dan's house. Uh, it's like he Dan has a beach house and it's beautiful, and he has what I call he's having a library music party, <laughs> where everyone is dancing to non-specific music. While there, Eddie, who is very down, um, meets a guy named Bruce who is going out with Robin. And, but this is sounding like a soap opera, I know everyone, but you just uh, just chart, chart it out. Eddie goes to the men's room, or the, the, the bathroom, it's a, it's a house, and he's just kind of washing his face, patting down, and Bruce comes in, and they have, Bruce has a special habit that he has. Now go ahead, everybody needs a boost once in a while, it's not addictive. No, I tried grass once, it just made me dizzy. This won't make you feel anything but on top of things in control. No, thanks. Suit yourself. You know, I may be speaking out of turn, but when you find something that makes life easier, I say go for it. What do you think makes Tad work 16 hours a day? Um, 
that stuff, it doesn't, uh, <laughs> doesn't make you act crazy or anything. Do I seem crazy? How do you do it? Just like I did. <laughs> I feel like an idiot. So, um, what do I do now? Now you go out and enjoy. Before you get back to your uh, synopsis, what I like so much about that scene is right after he snorts, the music kicks in. Yes. And it's the music that's playing at the party. It's not music that they had just added. And oh. it's like all of a sudden it, he becomes alive and the music... <laughs> You know, it's been playing that whole time. It's not like they turned it up right after he snorted. You know what I they mean? They did. They yeah, it was very um very cinematic right there. They yeah, kind of faded cool. faded it out for that scene. Eddie he heads down the party and suddenly he's like, "Whoa, this house is fantastic! Look at the way this goes over to here and this goes over to here. You can put a barbecue right here. I'll put a fireplace on my head. We're gonna dance around. We're gonna do this. It's gonna be crazy." <laughs> and he just goes nuts. He, he loves. He he clearly enjoys it. What happens then is they give him a big, big money sale, which he's never done before. And he goes out to a big house on the coast with a very snooty woman named Mrs. Mar Marchese. Marchese? Sure. Um, I, I, she has a translator with her. And within, I guess, one minute, Eddie has already committed so many faux pas that they actually leave. With the main faux pas being, Eddie says, we have a beautiful kitchen, and the translator says, Mrs. Marchese doesn't go to the kitchen. And I thought, oh, Mrs. Marchese, you're a great character. Let me watch you some more. And they leave. And so he real Eddie realizes that the only way he's going to get back on top is by doing coke. So he goes back to Bruce, also seeing Robin on occasion. We mentioned earlier they had a bok choy-related meal. Um <laughs> But that's like Bruce has a great, great place and Robin's there and and Eddie's snorting coke and he's buying a lot of coke from Bruce. And Bruce says he is not a he's not a dealer. But he, he is clearly not a dealer, is. But he clearly is. And Eddie's spending a lot of money on the coke, but he's doing it. He's selling the houses. He buys a new car. He gets a new slick wardrobe. He, he puts hair. some color in his hair. He loses a lot of weight, apparently. I didn't yeah, see I, it myself. He looked tell. thin. Yeah, he he looked thin to begin with. They're like, you need to lose some weight. And it's like, yeah, ex when has Dennis Weaver ever needed to lose weight? <laughs> Precisely. I mean, come on. Uh, all those years riding around the horse through the streets of New York City, McLeod kept him thin. But what begins to happen is the more successful he becomes, the less attention he pays to his family. And his wife misses him. And I when Big I say time. misses him, misses him, she misses him, um uh and as in he's never there, also misses him as in between the sheets. Yes. Um uh, and quite also, the active sex life before he started snorting. Yes, and it's one of those things there there is a scene where he says something like, You get so mad at me, I uh you know, for two nights we don't fool around and she said, Two nights is now three weeks, Eddie. Here's it's the like thing. so he really yes. has a good life because he has a very active sex life. And yes, she wears horrible sweaters. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're a perfectly attractive couple. Yes, they are. He should be happy. Yeah. Yes, they are. And and uh, the son Buddy is it. There there's a there's a big thing like I said with Buddy and Stanford and and Stanford. Sorry, not Stanford. I don't know where that came from. Stanford studying law. And what happens as the movie goes along is. We hit a point where several things, several big things happen at once. So Eddie's at the top of his game. Yes, he may have had a strange fisheye lens freak out when he was going to visit a couple on a yacht. That's fine. He's still got his two. He's buying a lot of it from Bruce. Bruce has the nose candy he needs for his Dennis Weaver nose. Eddie has a friend named Mort, Morty. Morty's wife, Rhoda, left him. And a oh, Morty he was married mich- to a Rhoda? Yeah, yeah, that's oh. that's um, it's uh, it's Morty and Rhoda. Morty's wife Rhoda left him. Morty's played by Jeffrey Tambor. Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Tambor. Mort Morty is hooked up with a younger woman named Jackie, and Jackie is driving Morty, r- running him ragged. But Morty has an edge, and that's he's snorting a lot of coke. As the movie runs along, Morty tries to commit suicide. And we learn what what Morty was up to and what cocaine did to Morty. But Eddie is still focused on the dream. He's focused on making the cash, being in charge, all these other things. And sort of in quick succession, we get Morty trying to commit suicide. We get Buddy, the son, discovering that his dad is on coke. And his dad actually briefly blames the cocaine habit on his son. So Barbara won't get mad at him, Eddie. There's sort of it all rushes towards this big ending where, okay, so he's seen what cocaine does with Mort, and he's seen um, that his son doesn't respect him anymore. But at the point where he's trying to give up and go cold turkey, suddenly he gets the call, the big call. The, those folks who were on the yacht that I mentioned earlier, we had the freak out right before it, they want to buy a huge home. And Eddie has to decide between buying some more Coke and maybe stealing Buddy's college fund to do it or (laughs) saying, I'm not going to do this. And I'm going to draw the curtain right there. But it's like the movie builds and builds in in classic sort of style with all sorts of different plot lines and things going on. And um, uh, I think I think we should discuss. Nate, you want to tell us what you know? So this is your first time watching it, right, Nate? Yes, I was actually very shocked by all the familiar faces in this movie. Yes. <laughs> I was like, there's so many people in it that um, I just didn't know it was in it, because I didn't know anything about this movie before I watched it. I know that for some reason I kept miscalling it. I was kept calling it uh, Cocaine, One Man's Addiction. Oh, well, that and might then, be. That's because that's a logical title. I don't know why, but finally <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I think it's Seduction. And then, of course, one... Amanda, you'd responded to a Facebook post that I'd posted uh, within the last week or so. And initially, I was going to respond with, oh, and by the way, I loved cocaine. But then I thought it was going to make it look like that you were like Robin, who was kind of trying to coax me into doing coke. And then I did. I have to admit, I do think I tried to coax you into drinking once at a horror convention. We're with Wes. That probably didn't take much coaxing, though. Yeah, I don't remember you drinking much, but I was just like, come on, Nate. (laughs) come on and you're like i don't know if i'm in the mood i was like come on nate (laughs) i'm sure you could convince me to have something it'll make you feel better nate you could be like everybody's doing all the cool kids are doing it come on nate it's it's an ounce or nothing 
to, to quote to misquote the movie. Or it's not addictive. Movie. It's not. That's my favorite. It's not addictive. Oh, you, you that was a horrible it. thing to say to him, and he should have known yes, better. He was too yes. old to fall for that. Mm-hmm. But so, what did you think of the movie? Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I thought it was um, pretty well done because uh, sometimes when you know I'm about to watch a made-for-TV movie I haven't seen before, I wonder if I'm going to end up finding it more cheesy. Right. Than anything else. This one, I, I didn't find n- nearly, you know, to be like as cheesy as some of the other movies that uh, I've watched, um, which I'll save for a future uh, podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> the suspense. But, <laughs> but no, I did. I did enjoy it. Um, you know, the uh, the way it plays out. And actually, when he has his, um, you know, not to, I guess, go too far into spoiler territory, but when he finally has his meltdown with Robin. Is all I'll say. Oh, right. That was a very well done scene. Yeah. It was. But, you know, she was his gateway, you know, and she warned him through the film. I have to admit, she did warn him that he was getting too deep. But she, I feel like she didn't play fair with him at the end either because she didn't really stop him. She just would be like, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't do so much. And then she's like, hey, let's have bok choy and snort. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she never really tried to, like, convince him it was wrong. And, and then – go ahead. Oh, he does – uh, there is a scene where he sort of kisses on her and begins to sort oh, of. Oh, he likes her hair. With her. Yeah, her and he, hair is so pretty. Now, if Dennis de- Weaver said that to me. Ah, uh, uh, well, we're done. Uh, we're done. We're doing it right there. It's Dennis That's Weaver. The, the, there's the explicit tag on our uh, on our <laughs> iTunes right there. <laughs> I'm just saying. At the end of the movie, and we're gonna. I think we're we'll spoil it here. We'll we'll jump ahead a bit, but he does. He he ODs. Yes. On the way to that final, that big, big sale. Oh, no, he's there. He's, he's at their apartment or their hotel. Yes. He's not yes. at the house or the whatever. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, he, he's, he's, he, oh, I, I was, I, I meant he ODs on the way there and then it, uh, he, he takes too much on the way there. And yes, then when he, he arrives, it happens. And they take him to the hospital. Cops are there. And there's a, there's a cop with a lovely mustache who I thought you, <laughs> you got, you guys might enjoy. I don't know. He, I thought he was pretty, he's a pretty remember, good looking guy. The, but I will tell you, I cop, thought it was really interesting that the doctor was like a total jerk. But the yeah. cop was really friendly and like, I'm sorry about this, but he got caught with drugs on him. And I know this is tough on you, but we mm. have to, you know, book him. And, but the doctor was like, this is just one of like thousands of lives I have to save when they snore, yeah. you know? Yeah. And he's like, I have lost my bedside manner 15 hours ago. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. And the the cop, he shows up like twice and both times he shows up, he like comes around the corner and he's a thin guy with a good mustache. And he's like, he goes up to James Spanner. It's like, let's have a hunk off, you know? And it's like, no, it's oh, not going to happen with James. Oh yeah. I know that poor guy. Well, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't blame a person for the genes they were born with. No, ex- I don't blame ex- James Spader for his genes at all. <laughs> 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 I appreciate but- them immensely. At the at the end of the movie, he is given a two year probation, and he has to go into drug rehab. And the final scene in the movie is them sort of all hugging in the kitchen. But it, it was funny because all I thought as the credits began to roll was, "But has he lost his job?" And then I remembered about an hour before that there is a scene that is kind of thrown in where you see Barbara sitting at a desk surrounded by like fashion stuff. Correct. And, with a woman standing nearby with a clipboard. So I thought, I wonder if they added that. Because it, it's clearly, throughout the movie, it looks like Barbara is, uh, is a, a stay-at-home mom, housewife. Sure. You know, she, she's taking care of the son and, and, and the family. But there is this one scene 
where she is surrounded by fashion designs and there's clearly an assistant standing next to her. Now, unless Eddie makes so much money that he can hire someone to pretend to be his (laughs) wife's fake assistant when his wife doesn't have a job, then his wife has a good job. Yeah, she took Carmel by storm with her ugly sweater <laughs> fashions. <laughs> well, I guess the fashions look nice behind her. I don't, I don't fully know the way fashions yeah, work. Yeah, but I mean, she doesn't but represent a fashionable person. She, she, she doesn't have. She's uh, well. It's, it's weird because there is that moment right at the end where I thought, are they going to be okay? And then I thought, <laughs> oh wait, she's a fashion designer. But I totally actually forgot scene. about her even having a job but I'll tell you the part that got to me at the very end was when he is in the hospital and everything's kind of calmed down and they're rolling him through the corridor and he's like I'm so ashamed I'm so ashamed and that's like a really upsetting scene for me because I'm I believe he truly is ashamed but it's just like it's like he's done being high and all that's left is like the mess that he left he got he got caught and now Well not he's... that he just got caught, but like he humiliated himself in front of those two people mm-hmm. on like a million dollar sale and his yeah. and his wife found out and not only did she find out, she found out that not only was he keeping it a secret, but his son had been keeping it a secret. Yeah. Oof. And and that everything was pretty much at this point destroyed. And like there's something about his delivery in that line in that scene that really, really gets to me. It actually like as over the top as I think the film gets. I think that there's moments where I'm like, oh, my God, that's horrible. You know what I mean? And I actually really feel empathetic for him. It helps that he's a really good actor. Yeah, he's a really good actor. Yes, he is, yeah. I think in some ways um, he can be a little over the top, but I think that works in these types of movies. Um, So I know both of you, I think, are really big fans of Don't Go to Sleep. Oh, yes. Yes. And, you know, he has – well, first of all, he has a bar in his tub. We'll talk about that when we get to the movie. But (laughs) he he has a really over-the-top delivery in some of the fight scenes but i think you know there's so much grief in the family that it kind of like makes sense that he would be that hysterical sometimes you know what i mean and and so he's not afraid to do that in any of the movies and especially the two we're going to talk about tonight he is not afraid to go to the very edge of like where it starts you're it almost might become a parody but he knows where the edge is and he goes right to the edge and it's it's a little over the top, but it's never so over the top that it's not good. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's obviously that's what I appreciate most about him. I think I think it's after like six years of being McLeod, <laughs> where he was sort of this this cool character, sure. you know, yeah. and and it's sort of it's it is it is a lot of fun to watch him. Um, just He's just, cool. just yeah, you know, and it is like yeah that I'm so ashamed thing. I I had a little tear in my eye right there. You know, it yeah, it's like, just an upsetting oh, scene. I think the ending uh, is too Norman Rockwell for my taste. So, like they wrap it up in like two and a half minutes, and you're what, like, what? No, yeah, it's it not only it it's it's the fact that what happens is he's leaning against the sink, and James Spader comes up on his right, and and Karen whatever her name is comes up on his left, and they're hugging him. And then it fades into <laughs> like a, a drawing, a, a drawing. And the problem with the drawing is that it's his face and two like strange, almost jellyfish like shapes on the <laughs> side of his head. So for a brief second, it's like, what the hell is on the side of his head? It's like, but it, and the weird thing about it, do you know who did the music for this? Brad Fidel. Oh my gosh. And I just, I just kept imagining him like, cause he did the music for just before dawn, which yes. I love. Yes. And I so just, good, yeah. I just imagine like the opening theme that he originally wrote was like a series of 
plaintive, like almost cries with like synthesizers floating around. <laughs> and the producer cool. said, Hey, hey, Brad, that's that's pretty great. Um, but yeah, Dennis Weaver's in this. Have you seen McLeod? Could you give us? Is, do you got more flute around? Yeah, it's nineteen eighty three TV. <laughs> it's nineteen eighty three TV. And and that was it. The next year he did Terminator. Yes, I think. He did. Yeah, he's a very yeah. famous composer. He is. Yeah, and he's married to um Anne Dusenberry. Yes, who was you in took Jaws. my one piece of trivia I had about this freaking movie? Crap! I I was <laughs> okay, just okay. I I was I was freeforming from the <laughs> that's end. Okay. There. It's a hard movie to research. You know, it's kind of it's it's a weird movie because it's had a home video release and it mm -hmm. streams everywhere. Like it was on Netflix for a while. It might still be on Hulu. It's on Amazon, but there's not a lot of documentation about the movie itself. Mm -hmm. But it's a movie that's kind of lasted through the years, and a lot of people have seen it because it's been really accessible. Yeah. So I, I was kind of fascinated by the fact that I couldn't find that much about it. So I just ended up looking up some of the actors and Brad Fidel, of course, and, you yeah. know, and stuff like that. Cause I, I had to go like the basic route, not the like newspaper archive route that I like to take. Cause although I do have a little bit of trivia at the end, but oh, it's really, it really I, difficult to find stuff on it. And I thought this movie must have caused some kind of chatter wonder, because yeah. it's very propagandistic, but it's mm -hmm. also smart in that. Yes, I know kids did cocaine in high school, but that's an expensive drug. And to make it about a middle-aged man who could probably afford it more than his yeah. son could have, yeah. I thought was a really wise choice. And I thought it was probably more effective. Yeah, and I think – and Buddy, uh, his son, does say at one point there are more drugs in here like than in school than you could possibly imagine. Yeah, but you know what? I went to school with a lot of – kids and i don't remember there being a ton of drugs you went you went vegas right yeah i went to yeah. vegas and, and there were 600 kids in my class and that's mm -hmm. there were four classes in there so there was at least 2500 students in our school at least and we were just one of like nine or ten high schools i think i mm -hmm. mean there was a ton of kids in vegas i know that there were drugs and i know i knew kids who did cocaine but i didn't know that many of them it's not i don't i just don't see it as a teenage at least not a middle class teenagers mm -hmm. drug I see it more as like an upper middle class thing I think, for kids. Because where do you get the money? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, there's only so many times you can invade your mom's purse. You know, she's going to – 20 bucks ain't going to cut it after a yeah, while. Yeah, 20 bucks need, I don't think was – When a, you need 3,000 bucks yeah, to get it. Yeah, I think it, $50 – I think 20 would get you enough for once in a while. But like, yeah, I think it's a pretty expensive drug. Yeah, I, I got – right now on my left, the movie is still playing and there's that great scene where uh, Morty – has cornered uh, Eddie in a hallway. Hey, Marty. Next. And what you doing? Doing. I went to the bathroom. You're buzzing so loud I can hear you. Uh, hey, I got a little urinary infection, you know. Doctor gave me some pills. Sure, yeah, but you got allergies. You got head colds. You're, you're taking diuretics. Come on, Eddie. I've used all those excuses. I've used some you haven't heard of. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't, huh? Well, you think I don't know what's going on, Eddie? I was writing prescriptions for pharmaceutical cocaine. I was hitting 10, 15 times a day with Jackie, without Jackie. Patients complained. They thought I was rambling. Well, I thought they were crazy, Eddie, because I was incredible. I mean, I was 20 years old again, all eight cylinders, you know, just hey, hey, clicking. Hey, hey, let me do Listen to me, you idiot. You know what I did up there? I locked myself up in a room, and I smoked freebase 30, 40 hours at a stretch. There was no sleep, no thinking, no nothing. I didn't want Jackie. I didn't want my kids. I didn't want my ex-wife. I didn't want anything. I wanted cocaine. You want to wind up like me? Come on. 
Morty, I'm, I'm not into it that heavy. I feel great. You feel great. You always feel great in the beginning. I tried to kill myself. Me, Mr. Middle Class, I had my stupid toe on the trigger of a rifle. Eddie, it gives so much, but it takes and it takes and it takes. So good. I, Jeffrey Tambor should win the Emmy for that. Yeah, he should win the Emmy for everything. almost everything he was in. <laughs> <laughs> He's only now just started winning Emmys, right? So Yeah, exactly, for Transparent. Yeah, yeah it's about yeah. time. Because like, I was going to say, we, my wife and I, we watched the first few episodes of Trans. Well, I watched the first few episodes of Transparent, and I trust Jeffrey Tambor. So halfway during this movie, I was calling people I know to get some coke. But and then when I got to the end, I was like, "Oh, wait a minute! I'm not supposed to be taking coke." Jeffrey, what are you doing to me? I know he fools you all. I love that scene because he's like high on telling people that they're high. Yes. Like you know yeah. what I mean, and that's actually kind of typical of I think ex drug addicts. They they like they go into counseling a lot. Like uh, I will say, I know somebody who did a lot of heroin, and um, he ended up becoming a drug counselor. And his big thing, he got high on like helping people who got high. Mm-hmm. So you know, like like you have to replace your addiction with another addiction. Yeah. And also, I think drug addicts like to still be in the mix when they're recovering. Like they watch a lot of movies like um, Train Spotting and maybe Christiana F. Like they watch all these movies, or I guess Requiem for a Dream would be a big one. And and there's like it's like they can't fully escape it, so they do these other things. So you notice when he's cornered him, he's talking about all these things. But I don't think that he's really upset that he cut Rhoda out of his life or his girlfriend or whatever because he's like remembering the high locked in that yeah. room, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Jeffrey. Was I this think, before or after he uh he he moved out of the Roper's apartment building? This was that this was after That would I drive think. me to drugs. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I mean I miss the Ropers. I do too. It's a good show. Oh, I do too. That's where I think I first came to know Jeffrey Tambor. I think my we I was Larry Sanders, I think was Really? Um, wow, that's way later. Yeah, I'm well, you know me. I I led a sheltered life we in the in the in the nunnery. And he I just, was Mr. Sunshine. Do you remember that where he was like the blind professor or something like that? Do you remember that TV show? <laughs> Did you just make up a TV show? No. I can't remember the exact storyline, but it was a very short-lived sitcom. Um, with Jeffrey Tambourine plays a blind guy. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Well, now you know what you're doing this weekend. Uh, well, I, I think the, the thing I like about cocaine is that he says very early on, oh, you're going to go to Stanford, buddy. And actually, uh, a little later in the movie, we learn that Buddy has been accepted to Stanford. And he stuck the acceptance letter like under a, some underpants. I think he put it under a line of Coke. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Eddie very clearly early on says something along the lines of, you know, you're going to Stanford, you're going to study law like I never got a chance to do because I had to, I got married and raised a family. And so he's a man who had a dream and that dream was soured or ruined for whatever. Yeah, I'm sure he loves his family, but obviously he still has that dream. And so now he's working in a job that, and there's, in the real estate thing, there's no you, – you never get a point where he says, whoa, I love selling houses. <laughs> but but there is, the, there is the point where he says, 
you're going to study law like I wanted to, which to me says I would have loved to have done that, but I didn't get a chance to do that. Eddie enters this world of real estate, and for 10 years, for a decade, let's say from 1973, like a year after he defeated that giant truck that chased him around, which we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, to 83, a few years after he gave up being the Texas Ranger, he has been on top of the game. But now the game has changed, and it no longer favors him. So he has to. The only thing he can think of to do, and as far as we know from the end, because we don't know if he still has the job, the only thing he can do is cocaine to get himself back up to the top of the game. There's something about that that's like, ooh, that that's very, I, I don't know if honest is the word, but there's something about that that's very like, you know, like a man who had one dream, abandoned it, went to do something else, went to the top of the game at something else, began to fail at that, and all he has left is this addiction. And it's just like, it's, it's a freaking heartbreaker, and I I. I enjoy the movie. I don't <laughs> I don't like the fact that it doesn't give him something in the end. Yeah, but his I mean his family isn't that around more, him is great. Isn't but, that more realistic though? Because uh, if he had gone I don't back, know if, if he had gone back and his boss had punched him in the arm and been like, you know what? I understand. It's tough out there, Weaver. You know what? You come back and we'll start you on the low income houses again and we'll work up to it. Don't worry, you can do it, Gipper. That would be a horrible ending, right? And <laughs> then, if, and then, what if they showed him locked in a cell in his underwear with Bubba, his roommate, cornering him? Oh, that no. would be horrible too. So I think that it gave it the best ending that it could. They just wrapped it up too quickly. Like, there's no way I would be like, "Oh yeah, I love you, baby." I'd be like, "Look, this is not out for like a week." <laughs> yeah, yeah. We <laughs> and then we're talking. A good man suddenly discovered that the world isn't isn't going to allow him to succeed doing what he's doing. And so he has to do, do something that he doesn't want to do to succeed. And it ruins him. And it's almost like, it's almost like it's a, it's a tragedy and you, you want, and it's lovely to have the family right there. But I, I, part of me is like, Oh, that's great that it ended right there. But what kind of an ending, you know, that's the, I don't I I'm trying to think of an ending that's sort of like that but it's it's like I think I, it I, might maybe with some drug counseling or something and they told him it would be rough but he would get back on his feet maybe that would feel better Possibly but. yeah I mean it's the ending is lovely and the moment it ends you're like oh I'm glad it ended here cuz I don't want to see him go through any more I want to but see him does, go through it for hours Uh that's that's the difference between <laughs> you and uh, <laughs> Because I love this movie because it's like a tour de force of like awesome. Like when he's flipping out, you know, on the drugs, it's like it's just incredible to watch. And when he's like hanging out with Pamela Bell, when he's like, so like, you know, man, like I really like your hair. You know, it's like the best thing I've ever seen. And she's totally cool. And they're just eating bok choy and they're hanging out in their little brown apartment with all the wooded interior and the cool, comfy couch. And and I can watch that all day. It's what's well, funny because like when they're in that apartment, they're in the um, uh, Robin and Bruce's or at least Bruce's apartment. It's always like the camera seems to be low angle right on the floor looking yeah. right at them at the glass table. And then there's that one point where it's like um, Bruce is trying to get 
Eddie to buy some drugs, and Robin runs up and she's got little shorts on. Oh, I love it's that like, scene. Oh, That's hey! very early eighties. That's very early eighties, yeah. like yeah. her sweater like, with the shorts, yeah, the nylons yeah, like, and everything. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's funny because yeah, I um do enjoy this movie, but another part of me doesn't like this movie because <gasps> because you you present you present a man with a hurdle that he can't get over unless he does something that will ruin him. And then it ruins him and you're like, "Okay, let's get back together. Let's huddle." You know, it's like, "Oh, I don't it's- this is life one oh one, baby. He's gonna have to crawl back from the from I know, but this is what we hell. all this is what we do every day. You know, I want yeah, I he's want doing to... it in nineteen eighty three with women who wear shoulder padded sweaters and shorts. That's the difference. It's better there. I suddenly agree. It's better there. Bok choy. They have bok choy. <laughs> I love it's... that. There, there is. It is a great moment where it's like he, uh, uh, Dennis Weaver, uh, uh, Eddie does a few toots. It's like okay, let's have let's have a meal. And I forget what Bruce says he's gonna do, but Robin oh, is like squatted down and she like lifts herself up in her shorts and she goes, "I'll get the bok choy." And I'm like, "Yes." He says, "He says I'm gonna. I'm, I'll make the appetizers." And then he brings out his coke and he lines it up uh-huh. and he starts. Kind of slowly bringing it. So let's talk a little bit about David Ackroyd's character, Bruce, who is the banker drug dealer. Sure. Because I feel like if David Ackroyd's in a movie, we should talk about him. Because he's okay. fantastic. I love him. But he, I think he's a really interesting character because through the whole film, he's obviously a sleazebag. He's a sleazebag. He's really good at conning people into doing drugs. And he acts just like a drug dealer when they need him most. But he can't stand being called a drug dealer when his girlfriend talks about him dealing he gets so upset that you think he might physically hurt her he doesn't but you could tell there's something about that label that really bothers him and i think that as a character he's perfectly written he's he's a really fantastic character i think he's interesting i think he's compelling and i think that he's also really entertaining like you know when when he comes to him when um eddie comes to him and he's desperate and he says that he remember he dropped all of his uh, coke down the toilet, and it was like really expensive yes. coke. Yes. And he laughs. David Actor's character laughs at him, <laughs> but I would laugh too because it was that's, just ridiculous. That sounds like something out of the groove tube or something like that. Yeah, and then like he's like, yeah. he's like, you know what? I feel for you, Eddie. I need five hundred dollars, and I'll help you out. And he's like, well, let me write you a check. And it's obvious that Dennis Weaver is probably going to be good for it. And they are friends. But, you know, when you're a dealer, you don't have any friends, right? And so he's like, you know what? I got a lot of clients that do that to me, Eddie. And there's his performance is so on target. Yet he's in the body of like a white privileged banker. You know what I mean? But he does not have his own office, which I found. He doesn't know. Uh, he's not that successful. He's, he's like sitting out in the middle of the, not quite the middle, but say like the like a corner of a bank but near you know, offices. There are a lot of lone uh, people who do have just desks in the open at banks. I mean, that's not that uncommon. But you're right. He wasn't as upscale as I think he I think there's a lot of things about that character where he would like you to think he's more well-placed. Than yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and and I think at the end of the day, maybe that's why Robin kept going for Eddie because Eddie has a big corner office. Eddie has a big corner office. And the thing about his big corner office is you can drop the blinds and get down to the business. Eddie, your office is so big. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's what happened? 
<laughs> well, I, I, um, I think she might have had an office too. I, yeah, that's the weird thing about her is we, is, is her name on the list? They show a list of everyone. Oh, I don't remember. So I did not think to look for her name until right now because I was just looking for Eddie's. But I will say, David, uh, David Aykroyd, he was the original, uh, crap. On, <laughs> on, <laughs> Gary, Gary Ewing. Oh, yes, he was. You're right. You're right. Yes, I was going to make an accurate joke. Like he was the original Blues Brothers. No, he was. I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. The The problem is that right now on the TV to my left, James Spader is in sweatpants and no top running around no, arguing with here. his dad. Podcasting here. No distractions. No. The, it, here's I the know thing. It's distracting. We, and I know that Weaver's big office is really distracting, but let's bring it in. Let's bring it. So, so yeah, no. So, yeah, David Aykroyd was the original Gary Ewing. I forgot that. Chad, you know what? Somebody just posted a photo of him on Twitter as Gary Ewing, and I'd forgotten he's that Ted Shackelford wasn't the original. He's in Reunion, which I think is the two-part that opens the second season or the first full season of the show. Yeah, I just remember him vaguely. Uh, he's a wonderful actor. He's in a movie yeah, that I we do probably like him. get to called Deadly Lessons. And he, oh. it's not one of my favorite movies, but I think he's really good in it. I think he's good in everything. I think he's a complete underrated talent. And whenever I see him in stuff, I'm always like, ooh, okay. I know at least this is going to be good. You know what I mean? He, he's a really reliable actor. Yeah, he's he's got that look on his face. Whenever he's selling Eddie some Coke, he's like, you're you're almost like... I might buy a little Coke from you. I don't know that I could uh, afford the full ounce, but um, <laughs> is there a half an ounce? Does does is Peru gonna allow that? Or, I don't know. Eddie, Eddie, come on. Eddie. This is. Eddie. I would not. I've been giving you listings for for weeks now. I mean, you've been bringing in money. This is <laughs> this is such good stuff. You'll only have to do half as much. It it, it is. It, Eddie. it is interesting. I think this is the first. On the Made for TV Mayhem uh, show, I think this is the first of these sorts of movies we've done. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Which is like, uh, it, it's either like based on a true story or pulled from today's headlines. I think this yeah. is the, which when I was a child in the 80s, as far as I knew, apart from Midnight Hour and America with a K, that's what I knew TV movies to be. They were all pulled from today's headlines yeah that's well you're a little younger than me so you came but like yeah like i'm like 15 years younger than no you. but like it just takes a one few year years than you, I think. it just takes a few years because there's a there's a very distinct difference <laughs> in decades for tv movies very distinct decades, decades you know like in the 70s there was a lot more horror than there was in the 80s and in the 80s they started to get to true crime and the, the disease of the week and that followed into the 90s do you know what i mean there's very distinct yes themes that followed in each decade and mm -hmm. and so you even just being a couple years difference and it also depends on like what you're old enough to stay up to watch what was rerunning in your town that's true because that i would i i would like i'd watch mr boogity but cocaine one man's seduction i don't think i would have stayed up for oh i would have I don't remember I, watching this, but we'll get to it in a second. I've got some trivia about it that's actually kind of interesting. Okay. Do you want to, do you want to well, dive into the I trivia? want to talk about Cocaine Woman Seduction. So my opinion. Mm. So mm. I've had this movie for years. I bought the VHS of it, oh, God, forever ago. And I watched it, and I was like, what am I watching? This movie is insane. Like his, when he gets really high, it's insane to me. And then I kind of set it aside. And then a few years ago, it, it 
uh, started streaming on Hulu. And I had discovered at the time Hulu had a lot of TV movies. They were, um, it's still actually on there. I don't know if either, either one of you saw Terror at the London Bridge with David Hasselhoff, where Jack the Ripper comes back to life in Lake Havasu, Arizona. Have you guys seen this? No. Oh, so good, Nate. I can't believe you haven't seen it. So I won't go, we'll have to talk about it later. I don't want to go into the whole plot breakdown of it. But anyway, uh, movies like that were all of a sudden popping up on Hulu. And Cocaine, One Man Seduction was one of them. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to revisit this. And I wrote about it for Kinder Trauma. I was just so, like, in love with the 80s-ness of it, you know? Like, everything about it, the interiors of, like, the restaurants they go to, that really rich guy's house at the beginning where they're at the party and like the boats and the way everybody's dressed, it really captures like 1983, the way I remembered it on television, you know, the way like the upper class lived. And it, and it was very like, I have to say that the, those parts of the movie I find really warm, like the colors and the look of it and comforting. And I, I really like it. But then th- they're also snorting a ton of coke in it and having freak outs and like doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so it's a weird mixture. And I just kind of, it's always been in my mind as like a movie that I've always been really entertained by. So somehow it was on Netflix for a while and then it moved over finally to Amazon. So I hadn't seen it in a while. I guess I read that Kinder Trauma article like five years ago. So I thought, oh, this will be fun. And you know, every time I watch it, I have a different opinion of it. It's like, sometimes it's really funny. Like, I can't believe what I'm looking at. And sometimes I'm like, wow, that was kind of effective. But I do think overall it is a, a pretty well done piece of propaganda. I think they were really smart about how they wrote it in that they used an older guy. Because I think at the time, and maybe it hadn't come out yet, but do you guys remember Desperate Lives with Diana Scarwood about all the high school kids getting high? And it's got that famous scene where Helen Hunt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? She smokes I the do, face. I uh, yeah. do, yeah. She jumps in the window. So. Yeah, and it's famous, and that is one of the – we're going to do a propaganda night, I've decided. We're going to do that mazes, <laughs> and Mazes and Monsters with Tom Hanks. Oh, gosh, Two yeah. absolute perfect works of propaganda. But this movie falls somewhere in the middle there in that it's not targeting young people. It's targeting older people who probably should know better, but it's doing it in a really effective way because when we talk about Duel, one of the things we'll talk about is how Dennis Weaver uh, was cast because he was every man. In fact, the character's name is Man, and Richard Matheson meant him to be every man. And Dennis Weaver, I think he's a handsome, very uh, dignified, uh, extremely talented actor, but he's also every man. Like, I kind of feel like I would want to cast Dennis Weaver in a movie if I was a director, but at the same time, if he was my neighbor, we'd be hanging out and drinking beer. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, And so I think he's a really approachable person, and it's easy to become interested in his stories in these films he's in because because I think we can project ourselves onto him so they cast it really well although I would never dress like Karen Grassle let's put that out there I'm definitely more Pamela Bellwood just so everybody knows but nice yeah I am I definitely like those those fashions but I think that it was really smart in in the way it hit the group of people I think it was aiming at even though I think some of it goes a little too far. I think Jeffrey Tambor, I think he's great in it, but I also think he's crossing, he's getting ready to cross that line. You know what I mean? Very quickly. And in fact, I think I'm going to take that. It takes and takes and takes scene and I'm going to put it with bastard and I'm going to run them together at some point. We can compare them. Um, But it's like, it's like it walks a real fine line, but I, at the same time I realize it is a piece of propaganda. So I usually watch it more for entertainment than for actual, like this hit me hard. Like the way you saw it, Dan, you really read a lot into it. And I think that you're right. I don't think that there's anything wrong with what you read into it. And I think that's great that it affected you that way. But I guess there's something that stops me from going that far 
Although mm. there are scenes like that scene in the hospital's room, you know, where there's, they're wheeling yeah. through the door, that I can't go there because I feel like they're trying to push something on me. Do you know what I mean? But at the oh, same time, sure. I think it's a really watchable movie. It's one of the only movies I've watched for this podcast more than once. Because mm. a lot of times I just sit down with the movie and I think about it and I do my stuff and then I go about my business. But this one I've had on a couple times and I wanted to watch it again today, but I didn't have time. But I just think there's something about it that's really attractive. It's the look of it. There's just something about it. It just it's got rewatchability to me. Like where I don't think you you're like, oh God, what happened? His life is ruined. And I'm just like, let's watch it again. Did you see her sweater? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's where the line is dropping. <laughs> but I do think it's a really yes. good movie, and I hope that people check it out while it's streaming for free on Amazon. Um, it's definitely, I think, it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, would you guys recommend it, Nate? I absolutely would recommend it. <laughs> I, I definitely would. And you know, it's closing. It's getting close to ten o'clock. Yes, you guys know what that means. It means it's time Uh-oh. for you to leave. I'm going to miss Duel, and uh, quickly, uh, I love Duel, just yeah, so everybody great. knows. Well, maybe can, next can, time you'll actually can get your five minutes. We'll, we can do the five minutes five thing next time. Yes. <laughs> so where's your ascot? Oh, I, I definitely will. Get your fireplace going, and we will talk about <laughs> Duel. And thanks for coming, and I'm glad you watched the movie and enjoyed it. Oh, thank you for recommending it. No problem. All right, I'll see you guys next time. All right, we'll talk to you later. Bye, Nate. Talk to you soon, Nate. Okay, so Dan, would you recommend it? I like movies. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, um, you know what? I would recommend it. I um, I don't know if um, the problems I have with it are personal problems. If you want to watch a movie that um, is it it moves fairly quickly, and it there are a whole bunch of subplots, and it boom, 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 and it does all these things, and then it ends much quicker than you thought it would. I like it. I don't know that I love it, but I, I, and I don't know that I'll watch it again, but I think I like Dennis Weaver a lot. Yeah. There's, there's some, there's something about him where I think like, you know, like I, you know, like I'd like to think maybe that's me out there. But then when I see him in McLeod, I'm like, Oh, that's not me. Okay. You know, it's like, you know, it's like occasionally you see Peter Falk in something. It's like, Oh, maybe I, that's me. Then you see him as Columbo, and you're like, oh, no, that's not me. But- I remember Dennis Weaver was on Politically Incorrect, and mm-hmm. I don't remember what the topic was, but he had his little cowboy hat on, and uh, he was oh. talking. I just somewhere in the middle of the conversation, like, Bill Maher stopped, and he's like, I just want you to know that I think you're the coolest person ever. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I would agree. That's, that's the thing. I, it's like over the past two weeks, I've watched Duel three times and Cocaine four times. And uh, counting the the fourth time was when it was just playing right, right. now. Um, and he's just so cool. I mean, I have Duel playing right now, and he like he looks the same. He's yes. just in a little red car. You know, it's like I I like him. He's someone I like. And here's the problem, folks. McLeod, you need to go to foreign countries. If you're listening in the U.S., you need to go to like Germany or I forget where it is. But there is in the U.S., they released the first two seasons on DVD. But you need to go to Europe and you need to hunt down on Amazon Germany or Sweden or Amazon Luxembourg. Go to Amazon Luxembourg first (laughs) uh, and you'll find they have 
McCloud released properly on DVD. And that's a long story that we won't go into now, but it's just like, he's so good. Yeah, he is. And, and he's in that episode of the uh, the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, where they're on the back lot, Universal Yes, back that's lot, right, yes. And they make, they make Casey Kasem. Yeah, as Columbo, as Peter Falk. Pretend to be Columbo. They but they also... Yeah, but they also meet on a horse. They meet McLeod. They meet Dennis. Drew meets him. Do they all meet him? I know she definitely meets him. He saves her. Yes. Like she needs Um, saving, by the way. I'm sorry. Yeah. But before Uh, we go um, down a rabbit hole, maybe we should just do cocaine trivia. Yeah. Oh, please. Because we could talk about the Hardy Boys all night. That's the problem. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Dennis Weaver. Awesome. (laughs) Cocaine trivia. Dan said this movie originally aired on February 27th, 1983 on NBC. It actually ran against two movies. Uh, a theatrical played on CBS, nine to five, which of course we all know is like the greatest movie ever, and which wow. is probably what I watched. And on ABC was Starflight, the plane that couldn't land. So huh. that's a conundrum because which one do you watch? Because Starflight has Lee Majors, Lauren Call, and Hal Linden, right? Wow. But Cocaine has Dennis Weaver, Jeffrey Tambor, and a then unknown James Spader, which would be quite a treat to tune into and not expect. Um, so that would be a really difficult decision for me. I don't remember watching either one of these when they originally aired. I didn't see Starflight till like two years ago. So, which is also streaming on Amazon, by the way. Um, it. And it's really good. It's really good. Uh, everybody's great in it. Uh, this cocaine, one man's seduction. Well, I'm sorry. One man's seduction was generally <laughs> well-received and seen as fairly realistic. One critic really liked the scenes between Weaver and Spader. Um, although some also found the film was a big cliche. And as we talked about uh, earlier, this was a really early role for Spader, and it came out the same year as Diner, which so that probably made it kind of a big year. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, one headline read, Cocaine or Plane, Choose Your Disaster. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And in an interview, Weaver said, I, quote, I went to a drug control center to get the information and the behavior of a cocaine user. He also said he thinks cocaine in Hollywood wasn't as big of a problem as TV Guide had claimed it was at some point earlier. So I think the year this movie came out, TV Guide had done an expose on drugs in Hollywood. And Dennis Weaver had actually discounted that. But it should be noted that Dennis Weaver was really famous for clean and healthy living. And he was actually a vegetarian and an environmentalist. Wow. So he, I don't know. I don't want to say that drugs are ramp. I don't know. But like, I think when people dealt with Weaver, they respected the Weaver and didn't do drugs in front of him. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you yes. Know, respect the Weaver. So um, Pamela Bellwood appeared in four TV movies in 1983. Cocaine, a movie I love called Baby Sister with Phoebe Cates and Ted Wass. Something called Sparkling Cyanide, which I think might be based on the cyanide pills that were in the aspirin. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I don't I, know, though. Yes. And something called Choices of the Heart. And as you said, the music was That's by Brad Fidel, who did Just Before Dawn and blah, blah, blah. This movie actually apparently ran in some high school health classes as part of an anti-drug campaign. Well, Mainly to show off James Spader. The yeah, gal. because it's really not targeted at teenagers, so it's kind of an interesting film. But you know what? Yeah. I don't know how many anti-drug movies were available to them. Though you know, you only have so many after-school specials, right? So Reefer, Reefer Madness, yeah, and uh, Arowana from. The... What's that one? Is it Teenage Devil Dolls? The one that was about heroin. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen oh, that. It's wonderful. It's so good. It's like Reefer Madness, but it's not as famous. I think that's I what think... it's called. I think Mar- Marijuana with an H is my favorite of is the drugs. Is that a movie? From that time. That's from the 30s or 40s. I forget who made it, but that's my favorite of those. Oh, I don't remember that one. It's I, I'm going to look it up while you're talking. I'm done. That's all my trivia. 
I'm back. I so, didn't so we're have time to look it up. We're just going to move into Duel because it's already Duel. getting into our time here. So yes, so let's let's yeah let's okay. hop into Duel. So here is the movie of the weekend promo. Here we go. Well, it's about time, Charlie. You want me to hit that car head on? Dennis Weaver. Okay, Jack. I'm hit. <laughs> Why? Why is he doing this? Duel is a very simple film. There's a man named David Mann, M-A-N-N. He leaves Los Angeles and hits the California desert on the way to some sort of, I believe he's meeting up uh, with someone deep in the desert from the MacGuffin Corporation, if you know what I mean. And he's driving deep in the desert, ends up behind a huge, gross-looking, tanker truck you, you know the truck that bj uh mckay drove and bj and the bear the beautiful red yeah, truck with all the stuff it's not that one this one looks like it's made of rust and it is it is it says flammable in the back it's a tanker truck so it's probably full of oil or gas and it is spewing toxins so mr man passes the truck as you will on on the road because you're in the middle of the desert but the truck passes him, and he passes the truck, and suddenly it becomes a vendetta. All the films, possibly, that we'll talk about here, Duel might be the most well-known one Probably. that we don't need to talk about. Because the rest of the movie, the original TV broadcast was about 73, 74 minutes. The theatrical version, which is the only version I was able to find. The only version that I think is available. Oh, which hurts. It's like Night Strangler. Yeah. We're only able to watch the theatrical. Well, it's, it's, about pretty easy, it's pretty easy to clip out the three scenes they added. I don't yes. think they did much else aside from adding those three yeah. scenes. It's about six minutes into the movie when he encounters the truck. From the first time that he passes the truck, the truck begins a vendetta. And it becomes a duel in the desert between this truck with the unseen driver and this man who just wants to get to a sales meeting of some sort right. or i don't i don't i i'm not actually 100% sure what it is he wants to get to but he needs to get somewhere to meet somebody and then in the movie he wants to meet somebody and then get back home to his wife and kids by the end of the day but there is this freaking huge tanker truck that is there Every step of the way. Who's driving the truck? I can't tell you that. It's because nobody knows. Because nobody knows. <laughs> that's part of what's so scary about it, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a fantastic thing. And that's um, a synopsis of it. It was November 13, 1971. It, it was directed by Steven Spielberg. It was the second feature-length thing he'd done. Spielberg had begun with... Night gal uh, a section of the night gallery. Yeah, which is a really good episode. On, which is eyes. Which is is it is it Joan Crawford? Yeah, yeah. And jo get this, get this. Take a deep breath. Take a little, take a little toot. Joan Crawford and Tom Bosley. Ooh, I forgot. In eyes, he does the second segment of the night gallery two-hour TV movie Eyes, written by and hosted by Roz Serling, which right. is so good. And then he did a few episodes of Doctor Kildare, and 
We did the psychiatrist too. He did the psychi- Oh, the psychiatrist from the the Wheel Show um, yeah, that had more. San Francisco International yeah. and McLeod and one other show that I'm not remembering at the moment, but McLeod uh, was in there. Ah, uh, no, I'm forgetting what it is. It, it was, oh no, no, it was it was Night Gallery. It was Night Gallery. You just said Night Gallery. No, no, Night Gallery. I was talking about the TV movie. Night oh, Gallery. No, the night, was it was Name of the Game. Name of the game was L.A. 2071. Correct. Correct. Sorry about that. that. So, yeah. so, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Here's the thing, folks. TV at that time was so much fun. They were doing so many different things to keep people home watching TV that it's it's more fun than you can imagine. I thought you meant what other TV had he done before doing I'm it. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. I apologize. There's This is going to be a very apologetic episode. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> It's it's all those. I did so much coke in the first half of this episode that I'm grinding down a little right now, and I apologize. Take your quaaludes and stuff, man. So yeah, Steven Spielberg, his first feature length thing uh, was LA 2071, which is an episode of a an umbrella program called Name of the Game. Correct, and you know, Fame is the name of the game was the original pilot movie, and it was the first pilot movie ever made for television. In the past week, I started reading up on Name of the Game because I knew of because if if any of you own the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film, which came out like 30 years ago. They have listed L.A. 2071. Oh, cool. So it must have some kind of release then. Yeah, and I was always looking at going, oh, my gosh, what is this? But it was a week ago that I looked at it and was like, oh, it's part of a TV show called Name of the Game with James Franciscus, who's in Search, which is one of my favorite TV shows. I I don't remember him in Search. I remember Hugh O'Brien, but not him. Hugh Hugh O'Brien, Doug McClure, and James Franciscus are the the guys. And those are three guys that – are fun to watch. So he had done. Uh, he had not done too many feature length things. That the the the, the first feature length thing he did was that episode of that Umbrella show for Name of the Game. Second was Duel. Third, which aired around the same time the Duel actually aired, was uh, Death by the Book. The first oh, murder. Regular, yeah, yeah. Murder by the Book. Uh, yeah, the first regular Columbo. I was going to, I thought it was, you were going to say something evil. Cause I think that came out the next year. Didn't it? The Darren McGavin yeah, team. 72. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Murder or death by the book. I'm sorry. I forgot. Yeah, what I think it it's is. murder by the book. Murder by the book with, um, Jack Cassidy and from Adam 12. Oh, uh, Martin Martin Milner. Yes. And that's, and it's fantastic. And you can see, if you watch that episode of Columbo, you can see Spielberg in it. You right. can see it. Oh, yeah. It's Some, a highly stylized episode. Super stylized. Occasionally a little over-stylized. But well, he's 23 for, years old. I mean. Well, you know. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I, I'm not, I'm not putting him down for Don't it. put down Spielberg, man. He makes I, I will not. I will not. Um, but so he did Duel. And he did a great <laughs> job. I mean, the, 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 well, I was going to say uh, about three hours ago, I read the story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you think of it? Duel. I really liked it. It's really like I don't know if it's Richard Matheson's best, but it is like a it is like a it it moves it moves and it moves and it moves and I it doesn't actually at least what I read it doesn't give David Mann a first name. It just sure. just says Mann. Sure. And it's it's just like he's he's going and he's going and this truck is in his way and then he's at a diner and the truck is parked outside and there's this final and it's just like it's really it's really well done, and they—I think they did a nice job of expanding it. Oh, yes. Matheson, and I think that was the right choice as well. Um, something I would like to talk about here, since you brought it up, is—I don't know if you, if you watched the DVD features on there. 
But the, the DVD came out a few years ago. Spielberg did two featurettes and Matheson did a featurette. And something that stood out to me about those in particular is that both Spielberg and Matheson said that when they set out to either write the story script and or make the movie, they didn't have a lot of symbolism in mind when they made it. They they saw both saw it as a straight thriller. Like Richard Matheson, this is loosely based on an actual event, right? It was inspired by an event where yeah. he and his buddy were driving from back from a golf course uh, when Kennedy died. And, of course, they were already really upset. Have you been assassinated? I'm not sure if he had died yet or what had happened or they'd heard about his death. And his truck pretty much just tries to run them off the road, probably because I'm assuming that driver was just as upset as they were. I mean, that was a horrible day. And I think people did things they don't normally do. Um, But he said that being a writer and having the writer's mind, he started to expand on like, well, what if, what if, and he created the story, which ended up in Playboy, which Steven Spielberg's uh, secretary read at work, which is hilarious and told him, um, I read the story in Playboy and I really think you should check it out. And Universal's already uh, optioned it as a screenplay. At the time, Spielberg was really into the artistic process, but he shot like a filmmaker, meaning that he liked to do a lot of long shots and wide shots. And he said he liked it when the audience was their own editor and he only used close-ups very sparingly. And that kind of made his mark on television because on TV, you do everything close up because the screen is smaller. And so he was doing it the opposite way, but to a great effect. And so he was making a name for himself in television, but he hadn't yet really found the vehicle that was going to help him take that extra step. But so while he was being very artistic about the process of making the film, he wasn't really reading scripts for themes and underlying elements. He, like Matheson, Matheson wrote it and meant to be like a straight kind of scary uh, event that happened to him, expanded into like a nightmare. Spielberg read it that way. He read it without the metaphors. And so we're going to talk about a little bit in the, with some of the feedback we have discusses the metaphors, one of them. But I, I kind of want to just lightly touch on them because I think sure. what's so interesting about Duel is it, it's probably one of the most simple films ever made in the history of film. And yes. I mean, it's where the man gets in a car, right? He passes a truck. Man and man gets in a car. Yeah, yeah. And and he passes a truck, and then it's just two hours of like being chased, right? And that's that's essentially what the heart of the movie is. Spielberg said when he went to Europe, um, when it got a theatrical release, that was the first time that people started talking about the movie as something more than just a guy being chased by a truck. And they read it as a very um, blue collar, white collar. You know, I think man was supposed to be white collar. And the truck was represented blue collar. And I think there's because of communism was a thing. And you know what I mean? So there was a lot of class issues, he said, in their reading of it. And, you know, I have to tell you, when I watch the movie, I always think of it as man, literally, versus the machine, literally. And so I see it as maybe sort of not communist, but there's some Marxism there to me, right? Uh And, um, And so in the feedback, one of the things that one of our listeners brought up was that that there's a lot of dealing with, I don't remember how he worded it, he worded it better than I'm going to say it. There's a lot of emasculation. So like, you know, when at the very beginning of the film, when Weaver's on the road and it's really quiet and nothing's really happened yet, there's a guy who I thought was William Daniels, right, from St. Elsewhere, calling a woman DJ. He was, remember <laughs> yeah, that? Yep, and he was yeah, asking yes. how to fill out the census record because while he was yeah. the man of the house in quotes, he wasn't the man of the house because he was the housewife and his wife was the, you know, she had the job and the career woman and he wasn't sure how he would put himself on a census because it says head of the family and while he saw himself as the head of the family he didn't think that he qualified 
to put himself on the census as head of the family because he wasn't the breadwinner. And it's this really funny, weird conversation on the phone, right? Or on the on the radio. And then he makes his first stop and nothing's really happened yet, right? Maybe he might've had like a little bit of problems with the truck. And he, his wife, he calls his wife and his wife starts talking about how she wants him to kick the shit out of this guy that basically she said practically raped her at a party. And he doesn't want to do it. He's fighting it. The only time he fights, right? And he, so he's like, he doesn't want to get that far into it. And and they're, they're arguing about it. And they've had a really rough night and morning because of it. Clearly, this truck is just emasculating him over and over again. You know, because he's like taking away everything that is like courageous and macho and whatever about how Dennis Weaver may perceive himself to be as a man. And he's terrified. He's He's like completely terrified for the whole film. And so that theme is there as well. And so what Spielberg said that was so interesting was that when he went to Europe and they started talking about these different themes, he said it was the first time that he realized that not everybody watches the film, his film or any film the same way. And he, he said, even the colors are different to different people. And that really stuck out to me while I was watching the featurette and because I'm always talking about films and experience and the experience is individualized which is why I can't stand people who write about movies and then try to make you feel stupid if you liked or disliked something, which there's a lot of that online. You know what I mean? Like I obviously know what the film's about and you don't kind of thing. And instead of treating it as something that's individualized and that we all got a different thing out of. So that was like his lesson in Duel. I thought that that was really interesting because I I can't help but watch it with symbolism. You know, I don't know. How do you watch it, Dan? I can see where the symbolism comes in. But um, to me, the joy of Duel it is, is that it is a 100% a pure suspense yeah. thriller. And I, ca- I can see all the stuff, the white collar, blue collar, and stuff like that. But to, to me, the, the trucker is more the devil than anything else just happening to be – it's like a – because I, I know of Richard Matheson from Twilight Zone episodes sure. – so I, I, to me, it's like the moment you don't pass the devil and the moment you pass the devil, the devil is going to come after you. You know, that's interesting because he threw, you know, at the end when the, when the truck goes over the cliff, he uh-huh. has a growl. Yes. And yeah. and that's the only hint that the, there might be some supernatural element to the film, but he calculated it that way. Like, because you. He wants people you, to have that as an option. Yeah, because you can you you see it, the trucker's arm, and for a brief second, you can see him. Yes, just for sitting a second. A, yeah. Just for a second, it's not enough to to give you anything. And clearly, he must be in the diner when he stops at the diner. He's or he's somewhere. I Maybe don't know he's if he's actually table. in the diner. I think he's actually outside. I'll be honest with you. I think mm. he's outside. I get the impression I, he never went into because you don't see anybody leave except that one guy. That well, the thing to me that I love is I love the fact that he is in the diner, but he gets out of the diner without Mister Man seeing him. I think he was just waiting outside because he knew Dennis Weaver was going to smack that sandwich out of somebody's hand. <laughs> <laughs> That was you don't uh, that the best thing about that guy who beats the crap out of Dennis Weaver in that scene is that he yells something like you don't smack a sandwich out of my hand. <laughs> but you know Whoa, what? Hey, you know let's. So uh, I I work right near a subway. I hate to to yeah. think what happens. God, well, those are huge sandwiches. This was like just a little <laughs> grilled cheese. Thank God. Like, what's <laughs> so great about cheese that? Day. What's so uh, great yeah. about that is he goes up and he goes, "Cut it out, man!" And the guy's just eating a sandwich, and he's like, "What?" 
He's like, just get <laughs> it out. It's not funny. Yeah, it's like. And he's like, I'm going to call the police. And the guy kind of perks up and he's like, police? And you can tell you, you, it's not him. You know what I mean? But yeah. Dennis Weaver just picks a guy. And that's like, sort of that's that's sort of in the story too, not quite as um as as big as it is in the movie, but that's sort of because there's a long stretch in the story, yeah, where he has um he's in the uh the bathroom talking. Yeah. You just never know. You just never know. You just go along figuring some things don't change ever, right? Like being able to drive on a public highway without somebody trying to murder you. And then one stupid thing happens. 20, 25 minutes out of your whole life. And all the ropes that kept you hanging in there get cut loose. And it's like there you are. Right back in the jungle again. All right, boy, it was a nightmare, but it's over now. It's all over. So another interesting piece of trivia about the voiceovers is that they actually played the voiceovers while they shot. Oh, wow. He was responding. Yeah, he was responding to what he had. To his voice. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah, back in like uh, uh, 50s, early 60s uh, British television. That's what they used to do. If they had voiceovers or music, they would play that as the actors were acting so they could hear that. Yeah, that's wow. cool. Now they don't play I music think... at all and you have to pretend like you're dancing. <laughs> Yeah, I know that. I've I've done some um I did some oh, did extra you? work back in the day That's where um, I had to pretend like I was dancing what? and I'd be like, Let's dance right now. What was that? Yeah. I, see it. I will get you a list. There'll okay. be a list on the thing and um some of those will come up. I'm sure I was we on all, we all want to see it. I was on an episode of Clueless that I've never seen oh, where I was a, that's a, good I, was show. a I was a featured um extra in one episode involving a frat party. I was a um a guy who was in every almost every scene I was asleep on a, co- <laughs> a couch and like there's one scene where the two main characters are trying to talk and they keep shoving me back and forth cuz I keep falling on did, them. Did uh did you use your mullet as a pillow? No, this was after I'd shaved it. Oh, um, darn. This was 98, so I was I had a shaved head. I'm disappointed. I know. I have a wig that can simulate a <laughs> mullet, but I did not right there. They said, no, we want you without that. I might have to CGI. Uh, oh, awesome. Out there just to make uh, it more real for me. But anyway, I, th- I think we could go down a mullet, uh, a mullet hole, too. <laughs> <laughs> We could, that was the uh, that was the Alice in Wonderland we never got where she went down the mullet hall. Yeah. So, <laughs> something else I wanted to, to mention was, is, since we're talking about is this straight suspense thriller, which I completely agree with as well. I think something that's so great about this movie is the way it plays on paranoia. So talking about that scene at Chuck's Cafe where everybody yes. has the same pair of boots and everybody's staring at him. I love that. And, love and that. you know, nobody's really warmed or kind to him. At all. Even in the car accident, you know, he's like, are you okay, mister? And, but there's really no, like, concern for him. Yeah, even, even when he, like, he orders his uh, sandwich, like the Swiss on rye, like, it's like when it cuts to the waitress and in the background you can see the truck. She's sort of like, okay, yeah, Swiss on rye. And it's like, "Mm." if BJ McKay was there, would everything have been nicer? It would have been. I don't, I don't know. It would have been. I, I guarantee you it would have been. I Once hope. BJ shows up at the party. <laughs> What's, well, we've all been to Country Comfort. 
in season two of BJ and the sure. Bears. So we all know where the party is. <laughs> but it, it really That's does. A- it really does play in paranoia. And, and so like one of the things when I watch this movie, it reminds me of, so I'm from Vegas and I lived in LA for a number of years and I used to drive back and forth between the cities to see my family. I'm not out in the desert that long, but it, there's a good stretch of like three hours of nothing. Oh boy. And I used to leave like at five in the morning to avoid, mm. you know, traffic. And so the sun would be coming up and there would be nothing for miles and miles and miles, but the sun and whatever I, I had on my radio and I didn't have a tape player. So oh, I no. just listened to one station that played like one pop song and then did like weather reports and traffic reports. And that's <laughs> it. There's nothing else out there. And if your car breaks down or, you know what I mean? You're, you have to stop at a rest stop and you're yeah, by yourself. I have. Did you ever go through Palmdale and Lancaster? I don't think I did. Although part of where this movie was shot, we were shot in Palmdale, but my parents used to go through Pear Blossom, which I know they shot here. I used to yes, take Pear Blossom Highway. Yep. Yeah. I took a different route. The, the one time I went through Palmdale Lancaster. If you if you're watching the movie early on, there are lots of shots. I think which are probably added on for the theatrical release because they seem slightly redundant for what's happening. But you see him leaving L.A. and you see him going to not to Pasadena, which is nice. Yes, and then you see him going to the fourteen. The 14 is Palmdale, Lancaster. And everyone who's listening here who's in Palmdale, Lancaster, God bless you. There's so much dust. In Palmdale, sure. Lancaster on the peach blossom. Uh, is it peach? Peach? Pear blossom, I think. Pear blossom. I'm sorry. I got the fruit wrong. Pear blossom highway. There's so much, there's so much dust. I was going in... 1998 April going to be an extra on an episode of Jag. Oh well, I knew somebody who was on Jag. That's where I first got my hair. My oh, hair that buzz. makes sense actually. So that's where I got my hair buzz. It was early '98, and I looked at it and I was like, I think I look better with no hair. <laughs> I guarantee you, you look better with without that, the mullet. That with that with the um, business in the front, party in the back yeah. <laughs> thing I had. Um, I drove out, and it was literally like the call time was six in the morning at the Victorville. Air Base. Oh, I remember Victorville. Sure. And you had to like get on the Palmdale Lancaster, which Mr. Man gets on the 14. I had to go on that and a sign had been knocked over by an accident and it had been turned around. And so I was driving and there was no one on the road. It was 3.30 in the morning. And I stopped in the middle of the desert. I was like, wait a minute. Does that sign want me to go straight or go to the left? Yeah. Go to the left. Okay. So I went to the left. About 20 minutes later, I was in Hills Have Eyes country. Yeah. I was like, and that's why to this day, I do not like the desert. It's like my my family, my wife's family, every once in a while, they're like, let's all go to Palm Springs for Thanksgiving. And I'm like, no, because we'll all get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not Palm I, Springs. I don't. I'm not they a only Palm eat Spr- the rich there. I, I, I don't want to. That's a great Motorhead song, <laughs> Eat the Rich. I do not like the desert. I love forests. I love woods. I love coastlines. I, I love mountains. I cannot do deserts. Yeah. Um, I, lo- I don't and, like the desert because I grew up in one, but I do think that they are really moody. I do, well, yeah, it was like I – so after 20 minutes of driving through the desert, I stopped. And this was 98, so I didn't have a cell phone. Sure. All I had was a page of directions that I'd written down. It was like, okay, I need to turn around. And I went all the way back. And luckily, I was still early. And I went to the nearest gas station, like in Duel. And I was like, can you please tell me where the Victorville Air Force Base is? 
and they were like, oh yeah, it's like two blocks down the road. And I was like, and I got there on time. And we, we, had, we had a 13 hour day. On the way home that night, at like 8 o'clock that night, where I'd been up for like 15 hours, I fell asleep <gasps> on the 405 oh. highway going back to, it was literally, I was going down a hill and I had the Phil Hendry show playing which was this goofy show that I loved listening to. And I was listening to it, and suddenly I was, like, at the bottom of the hill. And I and my, I was like, what? Where am I? And I was like, oh, my God. Well, that's scary. So, that was super freaking scary because I wasn't in the middle of nowhere. Like, when I used to go to college in Ithaca, and we would drive down this road with no one on it, we would fall asleep, and it was fine. It's this not was fine to f- fall asleep while you're driving, ever. You don't fall asleep on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles. And it was just like, whoa. Oh, and so it was like, so where David Mann is, I get it. You want to be past that. Yes. Possible. But not without be- passing rusted tankers. Oh, my God. They're the worst, aren't they, when the <laughs> devil drives a truck? Yeah. But it's just like, I mean, the, th- the thing about Duel at the end of the day is it is, to me, it's a pure suspense film. There can, there can be metaphor to it, but to me, it's pure suspense film, and it goes from sequence to sequence. The initial sequence, and then he's at a gas station, and then he's at a diner, and then he's at a train tracks, and then there is, there's an old couple. What's the matter? Car trouble? Well, in a way, yes. I wonder if you'd do me a favor. What's that? Would you stop the nearest telephone you come to and call the police? Police? Yeah, you, you see that truck? Mr. Meade, don't want any trouble. No, 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 there oh, won't yeah, be any trouble. All I'm asking you to do is just call the police. Was there no, answer? ma'am, all I'm asking you to do is just to make a phone there? call. Jim, step on the My pe- life's in danger. I'm Can't sorry, you make a lousy Mr. phone call to the lousy I'm... police for me? Stop it, Mr. Well, just drop me off at the nearest station. I'll pay you for it. Jail! Jam. I love that part. It's actually saying damn, but his name. Damn, Jam. Old folks, what are you up to? So they're in um that those two people are in Close Encounters. What? Yeah, I don't know who they are. I actually have never seen Close Encounters. Are they? You know, I hazmats. I think in it. I hate to break your heart, but. I've never seen Close Encounters either. Okay, well, so well, anybody out there has seen it, that couple. I haven't seen a Steven Spielberg movie in a while, but I'm kind of remembering now why I loved him as a kid. Oh, so, he's a, Well, he's a great director, but one of the things, he said a lot of things that I really resonated with in these featurettes. And one of them was that, you know, he's very nostalgic, which I was like, oh, thank you, Steven. I'm, it's so nice to hear somebody say that. That's not uh-huh. And um, <laughs> or me, yeah. Well, so like I don't, I have never seen 1941, but you know, so there's that scene where where oh, that, it's so good. Well, oh. you know, there's that scene where where uh, Stephen Weber, Dennis, whoa, Dennis Weaver shows up at um, the Snakeorama, yeah, and Lucille Benson is there with the snakes, right? And uh-huh. and then the truck comes and and breaks some of her cages, and then there's bugs and whatever all over him. He replicated that scene in 1941 mm-hmm. with Lucille Benson. He brought her back and had a snake-a-rama. And he did that as a tribute to her and as a tribute to to Duel. And again, in Jaws, so when they shot the truck going down the cliff, you know, it go it gets engulfed in, like, the dirt and everything. But then it kind of comes out again where you can actually see the truck sort of emerge from the smoke mm-hmm. and everything. And then it goes and keeps going down. And so if you watch the featurette, they do this really great scene. So, you know, the growl also appears in Jaws. When he kills yes. Jaws, that growl is there. And then when he goes down... And his fin emerges again. It's right at the point where the truck comes up from the dust. Oh. So, so they took a still in the featurette of the fin and then of the truck. 
emerging mm-hmm. from the front from uh, from the dust. And he did that as a tribute to Duel. And so he probably has Easter eggs in all his films. I think from his previous films, but he he really feels like Duel put his mark on the map. It's what yes. allowed him to do Sugarland Express and that allowed him to do yeah. Jaws. And so he said that when he did that scene at the end of Jaws, that that was his way of thanking Duel for allowing him to make Jaws. Oh, uh, there's there's a wonderful moment too where uh, I I read an interview where um the last episode of season one of Columbo, which is the one with Patrick O'Neill, uh, where he uh, forced Tucker is in it as a big like um Texas guy who uh is building a big town named after himself, and Patrick O'Neill is the uh, architect. Forced Tucker doesn't want this to happen, so Patrick O'Neill may or may not kill him. So Columbo, like, digs up a big pylon and a huge skyscraper to try to find... It's It goes on and on. And it's, but Peter Falk directed that episode. He went to Steven Spielberg and asked him, because Steven Spielberg had directed the first episode of that season, the one with Jack Cassidy, and he, he asked him for tips on it. And so it's sort of like the assistant director, and I put that in quotes larger than my fingers can handle, was Steven Spielberg for that episode. And Spielberg <laughs> was around a lot on television. You know, yes, I mean, he was, he was for the first couple years that he worked, he did a lot. He did a lot more than I thought he did. I knew he directed The Psychiatrist. I didn't know he did two episodes. I don't think, it was Marcus Welby. That's the show I was trying to think of when I said Bank yes. I didn't know that he directed Marcus Welby either. And so he was, he got around, you know, and, and kind of yeah. did a lot of shows that are worth talking about and especially Columbo and um the name fame is the name of the game and and all of that stuff it's all really interesting you know and he did another tv movie he did something evil so he he kind of made his mark pretty deeply and pretty quickly on television and then he left us yeah he did Sugarland express yeah he moved on where'd you go where'd you go bigger and better things but so what i'm going to do is i'm just going to go over the trivia because there's a lot and then we can just kind of talk about the trivia as i go over it awesome okay do it. Oh, so on IMDb, it says Duel was shot in 16 days. Spielberg said it was actually shot in 10, but then they, or they gave him 10 days, but they had to add two or three days to his schedule because there were certain shots that just took longer than he had anticipated. And he was told by, I can't remember who it was that he worked with. Actually, it was impossible for him to shoot the film he wanted to shoot in 10 days. So, but the fact that he did it in even 13, I think was pretty remarkable because he, they, they told him that they were going to shoot it indoors with like that. It's not green screen, but the projection that they used to have of like the buildings and stuff passing when you're driving. And, so the rear screen projection. Yeah, and he said, I can't do that. That's going to look stupid. He said, it never yeah. looks right. He's like, people are put, pulling the wheel this way when the car's going this way, and it's not going to have any realism to it if I do it. He and said, I, I, I'd like to mention something about rear screen projection. It was actually funny because in 1970, green screen, which we they use today, green screen projection, where they – there's a green screen behind everyone, and as long as you're not in green, they can put in whatever you want digitally. Began in, uh, the BBC did it in 1970. So it's funny that you mentioned that in 1971 that he was afraid of the rear screen projection because uh, Doctor Who, which is one of my favorite shows, I'm sorry, did rear screen projection in 1970. Yeah. So it's interesting that that the the um, the rear screen, which is basically people sitting in cars, and I have read something where if you watch the theatrical version of Duel, 
one eight five, you can see Spielberg's you behind. Can. Well, you can see his head. <laughs> oh, is it is his head? Yeah, okay. well, he's in the car. I, I haven't seen it. He's in the car, oh. and then there's a, and then also you can see him in the phone booth, like and the, his reflection on the phone booth, because okay. nobody. So what happened was he couldn't look at the dailies because he was out in wherever the desert. He they had to ship it out to like a city that had post production or whoever takes care of the dailies, and he he couldn't drive back and forth to watch the daily. So he said, just make sure there's no scratches or hairs or anything and let me know if it looks okay. And so there was nobody there monitoring the gaps like that. So and I think it's because it's the aspect ratio. Yeah. I think yeah. But like, but like his three. reflection in the phone booths, you apparently you can clearly see that. And there, but there was nobody to like watch over that to make sure it didn't happen. Mm. But they did show some of the aspect ratio um, <laughs> stuff and you could see him sitting in the car going through the script and everything, you know, while Dennis Weaver's acting. And so that was kind of like, whoops, but you know, and so one of the things, I, oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say, I didn't see that, but I'd love to hear what you have to say and I'm going to not talk. Oh, that's okay. So one of the things he did to, <laughs> to compress the time of the shoot was that he used multiple cameras. He would shoot one side of the truck, you know, so he used a lot of mountains because apparently things look faster when you're passing objects, right? So he didn't have to go very fast when they shot things because he was able to make it look faster through like these sort of uh, tricking you with the, with these objects. But he would shoot like on one side of a pass and then he would turn the truck around and then shoot on the other side of the pass. But they would put him as two different chase scenes because each side of the road looked different. And that's how he was able to just like shoot almost two scenes at once. And he would have different cameras going at at the same time to capture different angles. So then it was really just kind of a matter of piecing it together. You know what I mean? Into one scene. And um, so he was really able to do a lot in um, a very short amount of time. Do you want to add in the uh, extra scenes he shot? Well, the three extra scenes were the bus scene where the bus is pulled over and he stops the train scene and i think was it the scene with his wife i'm a little unsure because what i read was that it was a a phone booth scene no it's not and it's not the phone booth scene uh, uh, yeah i i don't i know fully because the um the scene with his wife is um that that one with the uh where that the gas station that could be one yeah, that was uh, it. That's what I have here. I have the scene with the man on the phone with his wife, the bus scene, and the railroad crossing scene. Yeah, that's the scene where he's on the phone, but then someone flips a uh, uh, a dryer, um, like a circle from a dryer yeah, uh, yeah, machine yeah. in front of the screen, and they do like they do a very specific screen uh, um, uh, framing of him within the circle of the dryer right. and it's almost it's like like taxi driver that scene where travis bickles on the phone and the camera moves over and he's over on one side of the screen on the phone to, and there's all the rest of the room on the right and it's it's sure. that's sort of what that scene is like and it's like and that when when i saw that scene i i thought i don't know if that's the scene they added but if it is that's awesome because it's a great scene yeah, I believe that that was that's what I have here on the list. Spielberg only talked about the the scene with the train and mm -hmm. and the truck trying to push him into the train tracks. He didn't okay. talk about the other two. The other two I, I just uh, grabbed from online, but I think mm -hmm. they're correct. Weaver was uh, thrilled to be offered the the script, and he said. Quote, I know anyway that it's overall the most exciting thing I've ever been involved in. This has got to be the best part any actor will get all year. I still wake <laughs> up amazed I was lucky enough to get it. It was strangely, I, Dennis Weaver did not get nominated for an Emmy, although I thought he should have. But it did win an Emmy for film sound editing and was nominated for cinematography. Actually, Steven Spielberg didn't get nominated either, which I thought was 
was really shocking. So, you know, the, Steve Spielberg originally wanted to make it a theatrical and they were going to cast Gregory Peck and Ger- oh. Gregory Peck turned it down. And then they were like, well, you can make a TV movie, Stephen. Uh, he said that they involved him heavily in the casting process. He did not come up with Dennis Weaver as the lead, but that name did come up and he loved him in Touch of Evil. Mm-hmm. So he was like, oh, he's perfect. He's every man. He's He's got to be this character. And obviously Dennis Weaver was really excited about it. And what's really interesting is, did you know that in 1978, when <laughs> uh, there was a rerun of Duel in New York City, later that evening, they also reran Touch of Evil. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it was like I a little, little, I just ran into that when I was going to the newspapers. <laughs> So it also got a theatrical release because it was so popular on television. That's where they added the footage because they, they aren't allowed to like show 74 minute movies in a European theatrical. They had to be 90 minutes. So that's where that padding comes in. But I think it's good padding. I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the opening credits were redone as well, by the way. So mm-hmm. I don't know what the original credits look like. Duel was rescheduled for a theatrical release in 1983. And it actually had a test screening in Kansas City and Cincinnati. And then it also had a screening in Manhattan, but it didn't. It didn't fare well, so the full release never happened. They were trying, I think they were trying to write off of E.T. and stuff at that point. Also, the most interesting piece of trivia about this is, did you know that Spielberg got into a huff, into a huff when the Incredible Hulk used copious amounts of dual footage in the season one episode, Never Give a Trucker an Even Trucker Break? Trucker an Even Break. Yep. I did know that, and I was, I was hoping you didn't, because I wanted to talk oh, about sorry. it. Yeah, I watched the episode Friday night. <laughs> I did, too. It's so obvious like, what the footage is from dual. Well, it's, it's brilliant the way they shot it, actually. It's it's great because I actually brought my wife in the room and I said, look, and she'd seen Duel. And I said, look at this. These are the scenes from Duel. But what you need to do is add music to it. Yeah, <laughs> I that- know. It was it was hilarious. Like they changed the whole tone of the footage. Yes. And but what was so great about it was that like in the red car, there were always two people in the car. Yes. And yes. But if they were using the scene with Dennis Weaver, then the person on the passenger side would always be leaning down looking for a gun or like Bullets. Yeah, or something. So that way when they cut to the exterior shot with Weaver behind the wheel, <laughs> you would see just one person. And it made sense. <laughs> And yeah. so what I think is so brilliant about that episode is that they had to construct <laughs> the footage to match. Yes. And while they did that, they forgot to include an engaging story. <laughs> it's a horrible episode. They did. It's it's a little rough because, like, Bill Bixby throughout has a look on his face like, uh, what's going on? And what, am, what am I? Am I right <laughs> that he becomes the Hulk when he's on the phone because he gets mad at the operator? Yes, he gets <laughs> mad at the operator. Yep. And that's, that's yep, that's... That's all they could think of, so which they, was a little That hawked him out. And I'm like, dude, you need to stay out of society. Because if talking to one person on the phone pisses you off to the point yeah. that you become the Hulk, then you are not going to make it in this world. Because <laughs> you're going to get and pissed the, off by everything. The thing that broke, <laughs> the thing that drives me nutty about that episode is it's written by Kenneth Johnson. Right. Who developed the and show. defended for, using the footage. I was so hoping that you hadn't seen this because i i sat there with my wife watching it we were like what (laughs) as we were watching it it was like it's it's like um there's a sequence early on in duel where mr man tries to pass the truck and he doesn't get it and he has to go off into a side road and he goes on a side road flying through dirt and then he ends up in front of the truck and he's in hysterics like oh my god i passed it i passed it and it's like in the in the in duel there's no music right it's all it's all natural or 
fully natural sound. But in the Hulk episode, they replay that entire scene and it's all and it's like, oh my god. Yeah. Well, you know, so Spielberg afterwards, you know, he tried to sue and but Universal owned the rights to duel. And yeah. they owned Incredible Hulk. So it was like, whatever, it's our footage. And he there was nowhere he could go with it. But then he made it he had very explicit in his contracts that his footage was his afterwards. Yeah. So um, that was never going to, he was furious. And I kind of don't blame him because I get that people think of TV movies as cookie cutter factory films, but he worked really hard to get that that footage. You know what I mean? That was art. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Folks Love Duel and you play, I I have several friends who are big fans of The Incredible Hulk. And I I kind of am myself. I like Kenneth Johnson, Cliffhanger, Shadow Chasers. I'm I'm big fans of A Bionic Woman. Sure. But that episode is like, it's like, wow. It's, It's like, almost it's almost an it's not entertainment it's an exercise well in it's a curio i think it's worth watching and it's on hulu so anybody can go and watch it the episode's yeah, called it's, uh give yeah, it's on never give a trucker an even break yeah everybody should watch it if you've seen duel because it's ridiculous but i think as a curio it's pretty interesting um it's and, it's hard to watch i fell asleep but it's curious <laughs> I, I, about how you can pervert footage that was clearly intended to be seen a certain way into something so different from what the original intent was this yes. is a really good uh look Yep. And how you if can you, do that. If you want, yeah, if you want to see every single scene, which was a suspenseful, sharp scene set to, nah, I guess, hillbilly music. Yeah. I enjoy hillbilly music. I'm, I'm a white guy. And even though, you know, I'm first generation U.S. white guy, I love hillbilly music. So I, you know, I, I enjoy some of that. But Herb Hulk saved a ton of money using that footage. You know what I mean? So they didn't have to do any yeah. actual car chasing. Uh, there is a little bit of car stuff in it, but very little. So Chuck's Cafe uh, is still standing and is called The Shin. It is located on the Sierra Highway, which I wish I'd known when I lived in L.A. because I would have made the... Uh, the trip. And all I have after that is that composer Billy Goldenberg and Spielberg worked together on several projects, including the name of the game um, episode we talked about, which is LA 2017 and Columbo. Now, Billy Goldenberg actually purposely tried to make sort of anti-music to the soundtrack, which is really interesting. It reminds me a little bit of Psycho, but it's got a lot of um, discordant strings. It actually, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of Night Terror, which is another sort of car terror film uh, from the late 70s with Valerie Harper that I'm sure we're going to review at some point but it's got this really great score to it and uh it's kind of aids in sort of the psychosis of like what's happening and so all i'll say then about duel is that like dance had originally aired on november 13th 1971 as the abc movie of the weekend and it ran against on nbc the good life which was a tv show that larry hagman and donna mills made before uh they were on dallas and then eventually she went to north landing also there were on nbc was the saturday night at the movies and that night they showed something called the war wagon which i believe is a western and then on cbs was funny face which is a show we talked about a few episodes ago with um, Sandy Duncan and Dick Van Dyke, which was the new Dick Van Dyke show, and the Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh, I also wanted to say that film cost $425,000. And that's my dual trivia. Woo! Yay! There, there is an actual dual book. Oh, is there really? By Stephen A. Walt. A-W-A-L-T. Ooh, I wish I knew uh, that. You, it, it was written about two years ago. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it on hardcover and stuff like that. I read a bunch of it for this, along with the the short story, like I said, and it, it's a very interesting book. It it, um, it it is more in depth than we're going right here. Oh sure, which is which is rightfully so because he, you know, he's he's um, he's 
he wrote a book. Yes, so, definitely. So so let's um we'll go into the feedback and uh feedback time. Yeah. So we're gonna start with uh Kristen Haas, who's uh you can find her at kikiwritesabout.com. And I think her Twitter might be at Kiki Writes. I forgot to write it down. Uh, she sent us a really nice piece of feedback, so here we go. When I heard that you were going to be talking about Duel, I may have done a victory fist pump. It's such a great film. I love the tension and how you never really know who is doing it or why they're doing it. So much of the movie relies on Dennis Weaver's alone Oh, alone time, and he delivers. I just want to mention, we forgot to mention that the uh, truck driver is uh, Carrie Lofton, who was a famous uh, truck stunt guy. He did a lot of stuff like that was very difficult to do, like when they hit um, the phone booth, you know, at the Snakerama. Oh, that's a great scene. Yeah, so, you know, like they had these flags set up so that if Dennis Weaver didn't get out of the phone booth on time, he could veer to a certain side of the booth and not hit it and not hurt anybody. And so he realized, so the whole point was that once he got to this flag, he had to be able to make like that snap decision. Do I go straight and hit the phone booth or do I veer to the side? Uh And, And so it took a lot of precision on his part to do those things. And so, but he did all the driving and it's a beautiful scene. Yeah. And I'm guessing he's the guy you see when you get that split second view of him, but I'm not positive, but he's, you know, in a way he's his own character very good um so let me go back to kiki i just forgot to mention that so i commute a lot on country highways with plenty of semis so i probably think about duel at least once a week i first saw this movie as a kid my grandpa who's responsible for me seeing a lot of movies i probably shouldn't have at at a young (laughs) age like dark knight the scarecrow trilogy of terror home for the holidays etc all the greats, by the way, thought Duel would make a good double feature with Maximum Overdrive for his two young granddaughters. <laughs> as a result, decades later, my sister is still apprehensive about semis. Meanwhile, they don't bother me as I feel like I've been adequately trained to deal with their homicidal outbursts. I've never seen Cocaine One Man Seduction prior to the night I live-tweeted it, which was hilarious, by the way, Kristen. Oh, yes. I'm yes. still apologizing to my followers for that. The power, <laughs> of, the power of early 80s Dennis Weaver on Coke really compelled me to do it. There were just too many jokes to be made, and I couldn't resist. However, the confrontation scenes between Dennis Weaver and James Spader were really good, and even though this is one of James Spader's earliest bits of work, it was obvious he was destined to be more than just another pretty face. Agreed. I'd say more about both films, but I'm pretty sure everything else I want to say will be said on the podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing every word. McLeod forever. Um, Also, I wanted to mention that my friend Shane on Twitter wrote, Dennis Weaver gives great midlife crisis. <laughs> I think that should be. A he does, and it's funny because he he's given midlife crisis in Duel in seventy one. Yeah. He's also given midlife crisis in Cocaine in eighty three. Yes. So I don't. How long does midlife crisis last? I'm fever, worried. It lasts as long as you need it to, man. Awesome. I'm. Am I in the middle of it right now? I don't know. I'm. So, I'm wearing a long blonde wig and enjoying yeah, that's myself. That's a very. That's a strange possession, Mrs. Oliver. That's not quite midlife. Oh, okay. You're good. Um, also, I'm, I'm 35, 25. I forget how. I wear a red sweater. Um, so <laughs> also uh, on my blog's Facebook page, Jeremy said I had cocaine one man seduction in my Netflix queue, and it was removed a while ago before I got a chance to see it. Oh. I love seeing him get scary and slappy with Sally Struthers and Intimate Strangers, though. Great film, <laughs> and Duel is a classic as well. And then I have two more longer pieces of feedback, but I have to pull these up on my computer. I usually print these out because it's easier for me to read, but these came in last night. So um, nice. the first one is from our friend Shannon who you can find on Twitter at Rusting Willpower, which is R-U-S-T-I-N-G-W-I-L-L-P-O-W-R. And she also has a website, which we'll talk about after this piece of feedback, which is www.rustingwillpower.net. So she saw both movies, and this is what she wrote to me. I watched Duel tonight. 
I played it with the projector. Man, you guys pick stressful movies this time. But I'm really looking forward to the show. I hope Nathan gets to talk about both movies this time. You know, I hope to, so too, but he couldn't make it. I hadn't seen either of these before, I don't think, but both were good. The cocaine one made my nostrils burn just watching it. And I just knew he was going to snort the toilet water when his stash fell in. I don't think I've ever seen Little House, that Little House in the Prairie lady outside of the prairie. Jeffrey Tambor was really good. I don't think I'd ever seen toupee tape before. I don't know how I thought they kept their hair on before that. And I totally did not recognize Denise Crosby. Oh, you know, I forget she's in this. And I had to go back and find her after I saw her name in the credit. I did not think it was going to have a happy ending. Also, James Spader. There was a lot of serious stuff going on in this movie with the midlife crisis and addiction and family dynamics and financial stuff and what all. So it would be interesting to see what you guys bring up. Duel was amazing. I watched the Blu-ray with the projector so it was widescreen. I didn't watch the special features, but I started to. It looked really claustrophobic when it was cropped to full screen. I started to watch the special features, but I wanted to be impressed by your research and hard work in case they mention anything you're going to mention, which I basically just watched the featurettes and spit it back out of you. So movie was awesome, but very hard to watch because I have a lot of driving anxiety already. My car is kind of crappy and none of the gauges work. I did wonder if the scenes at the beginning of Jeepers Creepers were influenced by this movie. And there were lots of great characters. Uh, like the snake lady, but holy fuck, that scene was intense. I was a little disappointed by the ending, though, except I've already forgotten how it ended. Like, do we find out who was the truck? Who was in the truck? Did it explode? I don't remember it exploding. These are rhetorical questions I'll watch again. Um, You know what? She brought up something I forgot to mention. The characters are great in this. Another reason why it's reminiscent of Jaws, besides the fact that it's about like a Leviathan creature, which is what I think Spielberg calls it, and a guy going up against the Leviathan creature, is that he really has a good way with older people in his films and as very interesting, unique people, you know what I mean? He filters throughout his movies and Jaws yes. has a lot of like a real great small town feel to it. You know, Ben Gardner, you know, and all those characters, those older guys fishing and everything. And I feel like he used a lot of the same type of actors in Duel. And I love, and Richard Matheson actually said he, when he went to go see them filming it, he went on the day um, that they were shooting in Chuck's Diner or Chuck's Cafe. He thought that those people weren't actors. He thought that they were just people that used to hang out at the cafe. And Spielberg just set up the cameras and was going to put them in the film because <laughs> he said they were so realistic looking. And uh, so I think that's interesting that she saw that. That's and I'm glad she mentioned it. Near the end, there's a point where um, Dennis Weaver's character, Mr. Man, he goes off like uh, on a construction road where there's they, they have it all blocked off and he bites his lip or cheek or something oh, yeah and it's like his lip is bleeding all over and that's in the story oh. in the story it's like as we're moving towards the ending his mouth is bleeding all over the place and it's like as you watch that and you're like oh god yeah, yes. that's, that's good. I was just going to say that um, Matheson also wanted to credit Spielberg for the scene at the Snake-O-Rama because he said he wrote it in the script that all that stuff happens, but he didn't write the stuff about the animals running around or the spider on uh, Weaver's leg. Oh, I just saw that a few minutes ago. Yeah, that, yeah, that's crazy. The thing I love about beautifully directed scenes that that scene when the when the when the truck keeps going around in circles and keeps coming back. Right. And coming back, it's like to me, as someone who went to film school and who you know wrote a few scripts and things like that, it's like you see that and you're like, oh, that's <laughs> that's so much fun. And and it's like I was thinking about stuff like that 
20 years after like Spielberg did that. Right. So it's like when I like, it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm in my dumb scripts. I'm writing that. Oh, he already did that. Okay. Well, well that's a really great scene because she's like, why is he doing this to my snakes? And you know, and it's very oh, upsetting. She's, I love that lady. She's yes. the strange possession of Mrs. Oliver. Yeah. That's Lucille Benson. So, yes. Oh, I love her so much. Yeah. yeah, I do too. She's a, she's a great character. Yeah. So I wanted to say that Shannon has yes. a new album. It's an EP. It's a wow. tribute to Killer Party. I believe all the songs. Well, there's two songs that are remakes from the film itself. Yes. And that's These Are the Best Times and um, April by White Sister. So she has two remakes. And then she has two songs that I think she wrote in the 90s. Um, I think she was in high school. They're inspired by Killer Party. And one of them, she left the rap. In it. It's called Jennifer's Revenge. I think that's the one that has her. And it's yeah. so great. I'm so glad that she 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 took the songs as they were and just recorded them with new stuff. And and they're, they're really cool. They're really cool and they're really fun. <laughs> and if you like I, Killer Party like we do, oh yes, you will really enjoy her. It's four mm-hmm. songs and they're free to anybody who wants to go on the site and download them. So oh. I recommend and everybody I, go do that. So here's the last piece of it comes from our friend Gorb Limey. Yay! Who's on Twitter at I am Gore Blimey, and he also runs a really fun Twitter for horror movies called Bargain Bin Horror, which you can find at BB Horror, and I suggest everybody check him out. He he only got to see Duel, and he said, I first saw Duel when I was about 11 years old. I always remembered I liked it, but I couldn't recall why or any of the details. Last night, I watched it for the first time since then, and now as an adult, I absolutely love it. A very well-produced, exciting, and suspenseful thriller. It's hard to believe how young Spielberg was when he directed this and how well he pulled it off. The plot is quite simple. There are only two main characters, and I'm sure the budget would have been very limited. But he's incredibly good at creating suspense, action, and making the audience terrified of someone or something you don't properly see, which are all the skills he developed further in Jaws. Duel also builds the atmosphere using lots of clever camera angles and interesting photography. Visually, it's an amazing film, and you can see the influences on other big movies. Check out Jeepers Creepers, which also Shannon said, at the beginning, and even Tremors at the ending. I found it interesting that the main character isn't an obviously likable chap. Though I have to say, Dennis Weaver does a fantastic job in the role, killer stash and all. The only thing I feel doesn't work so well is the internal dialogue voiceover stuff, which is most noticeable in the diner scene. I appreciate what Spielberg was trying to do, and it is interesting to hear the character's inner conflict when he when he attempts to rationalize. But the way it's done kind of feels clumsy to me, and perhaps he should have done a bit more. He should have had a bit more faith in his audience, but that's a minor complaint. On top of being a full-on thrill ride, I like that the film has some depth to it as well. There's a theme of masculinity running through it. We see machismo at the start, but it also explores men's perceived threat to their role as the head of the household, which is shown in several ways. Overall, this is an intelligent and exhilarating landmark in TV filmmaking, and I'm so glad I rewatched it. And I'm really glad you watched it too, Corp Limey, because I really like this piece of feedback. This is the part I was talking about where he talks about the threat of masculinity. Oh, yes. Theme. And the way he wrote here, the perceived threat to the role of head of the household. That's what I was trying to, to quote when I was talking about it earlier. And I think that that's pretty clear in there, too. It's really an interesting way to watch the movie, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I um, the, the threat is there. But then when you're in the middle of the desert, I think all bets are off. Oh, sure. Uh, so so it's like I, I I agree. Like when he talks with his wife, and his wife says, you know, like, hey, you should have protected me from this guy, and the kids are running around, and he's saying, I'll be back before this evening and stuff like that. But then he's in the middle of the desert, and 
as far as I'm concerned, the devil is right. after him in a truck. It's like I'll, all bets are off right there. Right. Yeah. No, it's you can watch it several different ways. It's so you can just watch it for the perfect piece of suspense filmmaking that it is, or you can look at different layers in it. And that's, I think what makes it so enduring too, you know what yes. I mean? Uh, it's yeah. a really fantastic film. I wanted to mention that Gore Blimey is going to be doing a podcast as well. It's what? going to be where he looks at three different movies by one director. So he'll be doing like triple features. Oh, wow. Of all like Dario Gento or Spielberg, or, you know, somebody like that. It'll probably be horror related though. So it'll probably be like Carpenter. And I'm not exactly sure when he's putting up his first episode, but he said he's very close to having it done. And um, we'll mention it here when um, he goes online. I'm sure it'll be really fun. He's got a really great voice and he's funny. He's really funny. Good luck with that, Gore Blimey, and keep us in the loop. And that's it for tonight. Woo-hoo. I also wanted to thank, and maybe I'll read them next time, but we really don't have time. Jimmy G and Chris Clayton from The Strange and Deadly Show. Not Jimmy G's not oh, yes. The Strange and Deadly Show, but Chris is. They left us feedback on their UK iTunes. And Thank it, you. it's very nice. Yes, it was very nice of both of them to take the time out to do that. And also, I should say, The Strange and Deadly has a new episode out that everybody should check out. Yes. Uh, for um, Wrong Way and another movie called, oh my God, Scream for Vengeance. Scream for Vengeance. Yes. Oh, how could I forget that name? I love that movie. <laughs> uh, one movie's horrible. Absolutely. Scream for Vengeance is fun. Yeah, but Runway is deplorable and horrible, and you don't ever want to see it, but you probably want to listen to Chris talk about it because yeah. he, he gives it what it needs to have. They'll nail it, and you won't want to watch it. No, you shouldn't. It's horrible. But it's a really great episode. Um, they've changed their format a little bit. It's a little slicker. Yes. And it's fun. They still got a lot of the banter, and the reviews are great. So check them out at Strange and Deadly on iTunes. Also, we're on iTunes. Which is where you hopefully found us. You may have been on our website, though, which is, I think, tvmayhem.wordpress.com. Yes. I can't remember now. Uh, but <laughs> you can find us through email at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com, on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show, or you could follow us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. We're also big on Twitter ourselves and our own personal pages. So you can find me at uh, Made for TV Mayhem. And you can find Dan at Danny Slacks One. Yes, um, we're having a good time. Yes, yeah. please, please uh, join us. Uh, we tend to follow back. Our next episode is going to be a really great double feature. We're going to be doing the Night Stalker and the Norless Tapes. Oh boy, that's going to be a good time. Yeah. yeah, and I will let you know when we're going to record that for your feedback. When I know when I'm going to be available. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, busy. Yeah, schedules are busy gal. Schedules are tough. Also, I'm gonna um, leave us. So Weaver did so much. I didn't even go into like so all the trivia I wanted to go into. Did you know that Dennis Weaver was discovered by Shelley Winters in New York at the Actors Studio? Did you make that up? No, that's a true story. That's on his website. Did you know he's a humanitarian? That's awesome. Did you know that he's it was an environmentalist and he has a huge acreage of land that I think is a preserve now. Oh, he was a, he was no. a vegetarian. He was amazing. He was an amazing guy and he you can find him. I think it's just dennisweaver.com. His family has a really beautiful tribute page for him that's uh, all about his uh work in with the environment and the legacy that his family wants to have left behind for him. So Please visit it. Please visit any and all Dennis Weaver yes. movies, television shows, whatever you can find. I'm sure he'll come up again. I know. Goma, I know we're gonna. Goma. What? Oh, I'm so, I was gonna say go go McLeod crazy. Oh, I was McLeod gonna say don't go to sleep. 
Oh, I was going to say McCloud is so much fun. It's on McCloud it's comes like, up on on MeTV a lot. So Oh my gosh, it's like you do NBC Mystery Movie Columbo, McMillan and Wife, McCloud. Yeah, it's all boom, good boom, times. Boom. Good times. That was, oh, they're so good. They're so good. So um, I'm going to leave us with a song that Dennis Weaver actually sang on McCloud. I don't remember the name of it, and I don't remember where I wrote it down. So I will put it in the notes when I upload this podcast to iTunes in case you want to grab it um, somewhere online. So that's it. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. <laughs> I want some earth beneath my boots again I want to get back to my roots again Back where I can feel the sun for 14 hours a day Buildings blocking every view May never ever bother you But I just want to live another way You say excitement can be always found But lots of people all around Cause someone's always there for any game you want to play Well all I can say is thank you For inviting me to join you But I want to live my life another way I want to be where quiet voices are, where it seems the simpler choices are. Back where I can meet my friends with nothing much to say. You know, I've been in some noisy crowds, and I, I guess I can talk just about as loud as the next fella, but I just want to talk another way. So if you're asking me to never leave a place where people only breathe air that's guaranteed to turn their lungs a little gray, <laughs> well, all I can say is thank you for inviting me to join you. But I just want to live my life another way. Thank you, partner. I want to walk a slower pace again And give my head a little space again Feel my face a-tingling From the hot wind off the clay I've tried taking several strokes With several million other souls But I'd just like to walk another way So if you're asking me to make a trade and take my place in your parade helping you to beat your drum and shout your big hooray well all I can say is thank you for inviting me to join you but I want to live my life I've always lived my life